warning. Today's episode contains spoilers. So if you have not seen the movie or TV show that we are talking about, we highly recommend that you watch it first, then listen to this episode. Thank you. Welcome to episode 5 of The East Meets the West, the podcast in which we discuss Shaw Brothers movies and spaghetti westerns. I am your host, Rigor, and with me once again today is my co-host, Patsy the Angry Nerd. How's it going, Pat? Uh, it's going pretty well. Uh, you know, I'm excited to uh, talk about these movies without the uh, crazy distractions of losing power and snowstorms. So, uh, yeah, that's, uh, let's get into this, because I'm, I'm excited. Yeah, me too. Okay, folks, if you haven't had a chance to check out Shaw Brothers movies and Spaghetti Westerns, you are doing yourself a disservice. These pictures are so fun, amazing, creative, and enjoyable. I think, I actually think they're so much better than most of the movies that we get today. And Pat, I think you'd agree, and in fact, you just said that we lucked out again with an amazing double feature here. Yeah, um, I definitely enjoyed Masked Avengers. Uh, Ringo, the the return of Ringo was pretty good, but, you know, like I said, you know, uh, off air... I, I had some some issues with it, and uh, you know, obviously, we'll get into that because um, it's it's a confusing film. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Would you agree that it it just so happens that both these films are sort of paced equally, with the first third uh, or the first two thirds being mainly about story and character development, with some good action scenes thrown in, and they both build up and build up to and culminate in just phenomenal climactic action sequences in the last third. Oh yeah, uh, especially uh, Mast Avengers. I mean, Ringo was you know obviously had some some great gunfighting scenes, but you know, some of this stuff came out of nowhere. And like I said, we'll 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 get into that because I have some some notes. And again, this was a confusing one. <laughs> um. <laughs> I hear you. I hear you. Okay. Well, first up, let's do Masked Avengers from 1981. Brother Chang was spying on the Masked Gang. Chang said that all the killers wear masks, and the three chiefs have gold masks. He said the base of the mask gang is in Chingyang Town. I've lived here for years, and I've never heard of any gang of masked killers around here. Kung Fu Warrior is attacked by six guys in devil masks and ultimately killed by their deft use of tridents. No, not the gum, the spear-like weapon that the Greek god Poseidon is always pictured holding that has three blades on the end. 
We cut to a group of these guys in masks engaging in some crazy ritual in which they kill a chicken and drink its blood and then proceed to torture a guy whom they've trapped in a statue of Buddha. The three leaders of this crazed mask cult are called the chiefs and they're denoted by the fact that they have gold masks with three different colored beards, red, green, and white. The guy in the Buddha statue claims that the masks killed 28 members of his family, and one of the chiefs asks him about the 29th, his brother. The chief informs the poor guy that they were commissioned to kill all members of his family, and it is revealed that the other brother, Du Ming, is tied to a board. The knob that activates these traps to reveal Du Ming has the symbol for the ancient sun god, which centuries later would be adopted by the Nazi party, so that was most likely deliberate on the part of the filmmakers to incur a sense of dread in the audience, even though during this time period where the film takes place there was no such thing as Nazis. Anyway, this insidious mass gang of hired killers have been terrorizing the countryside with their mastery of the trident and an inherent brutality, raping and pillaging. But who are the men behind the masks, and what are the identities of the three chiefs in the gold masks? Chi San Yun, a martial arts expert and leader of a protective escort service of other expert fighters and his team, are hired to find the mass gang and end their reign of terror. Along the way, Chi's team encounters Kao Yao, who turns out to be a former chief of the masked gang until he quit because their tactics became too brutal even for him. He assists Chi's team in their struggle against the masked gang and helps to reveal that his replacement in the gang has already infiltrated Chi's group. The final confrontation between the masked gang and Chi's team of fighters leads to an all-out battle at the masked gang's secret lair, in an old temple. So uh, first uh, first impressions walking into this film, Pat. Um, the opening scene is is nuts, and it definitely has the, uh, the signature guy is mortally wounded, and there's no way he should be, like, moving, <laughs> let alone right. escaping dozens of miles to tell his friends what happened, and then subsequently dying. <laughs> like... That happens a lot in these movies where guys suffer these catastrophic injuries and they're just like, oh, I have just enough life left to exposit all over you and tell you what is going on. And now I must die. That's hilarious. And it's so accurate. And I think for this time period, you know, these were the superheroes of Japan. These were our, our Marvel guys, even though the movies don't interconnect, don't interconnect the way Marvel does it today. I think... You know, these were the heroes and champions, so of course they're going to be larger than life. Yeah, like they're they're absolutely superheroes, like one hundred percent. Especially with some of the uh, some of the stuff that they do. A lot of their martial arts are aided by yeah, you know, a, an off-screen trampoline or maybe you know an uh, an exceedingly ridiculous jump. But so much of it is just you know just them doing what they've been training to do for their entire lives. And, you know, yeah, like they'll take, you know, a ridiculous amount of damage. But at the same time, like, they're so good at what they do. Like, it doesn't seem that unbelievable. Right. right. This is completely off topic, actually, and not something I thought of, but you made me think of it. I remember back in the 90s, you know, even though I was in my 20s, I was enjoying the original series of Power Rangers. And one of the reasons I really love that show was when it was the scenes with the American kids fighting the bad guys, they were doing their own acrobatics in those scenes. And I, that always impressed me, even though it was, you know, a cheesy kids show. I, I love when the actors are doing it, not stuntmen. Yeah, and it definitely, um, you know, obviously the uh, the Power Rangers thing was, 
you know, like an homage to some of these because there's a lot of the the similar like if they could have had, you know, sparks fly every time like two weapons clashed, I'm sure they would. You know, it's just you know, some of the stuff doesn't always make sense. Like, okay, there's like eight guys, you know, absolutely decimating this one dude at the beginning, but he's somehow able to get away after right. <laughs> being, you know, critically injured. Skewered. Yeah. And he's like, oh, yeah, they, they all skewered. Like, they, oh, And, like, that was, like, their signature move is, like, you know, everybody would impale him and, like, lift the guy up in the air. Right. <laughs> and as long as they're important for the plot, they can they can get away. Otherwise, you know, you're dead. It's like, you better hope you have some useful exposition or else uh, you're out of there. <laughs> It's so true. But, I mean, he put up a pretty good fight. I mean, they were going at him with, what, six to eight guys with the, with the tridents, and he he was on the ground, and then he'd leap in the air as the tridents hit the spot where he was. And, you know, he did hold his own for a short amount of time there. Yeah. Yeah, he clearly, you know, one-on-one, he's he's fine, but, you know, that's why they sent eight dudes after him. Right. So let's get a little bit into the cast and crew here. Of course, this movie was directed by the great Chang Che. It is one of the Venom mob films. Uh, Sadly, this was one of his biggest box office disappointments because by 1981, audiences were kind of growing tired of his old school way of directing, which is too bad because this movie's really good. But there were allegations that Che was homosexual because before his film, The One-Armed Swordsman in 1967, which is sort of credited as being the one that kind of kicked off the... uh, the Kung Fu boom, the industry was dominated by females and there's hardly any women in his movies, let alone his Venom movies. In particular, his films had a lot to do with male bonding and and brotherhood. But if you look at some of his earlier productions, women did feature prominently alongside the male stars. It just wasn't all that often. And in my opinion, in doing my research, if you go over to, to the Spaghetti Western side, you got Sergio Leone and quite a few directors who didn't really care to put an emphasis on female roles. So I guess they were all gay, too. <laughs> yeah, right. Like, oh, you don't have a ton of uh, women in your uh, in your movie about cowboys, you know, battling, uh, you know, vicious, you know, outsider <laughs> groups. Right. You know, it's right. Like, like, yeah, but <laughs> <laughs> it's so frustrating. <laughs> like, that's not part of the it's like oh we have like this huge gang fight you know like between this gang and that gang and you know they're all like dirty like gross dudes that have been like sleeping out in the in nature for weeks at a time and on a cattle drive or whatever and it's like oh it's a bunch of guys like super macho testosterone you know right I mean, it's it's the same same thing we see now with you know any time a, a woman does anything in a movie, it's like oh my god, I'm outraged. It's like oh, good. I know. I feel a lot of these critics need to calm things down. It's just good stories. I mean, a good story is a good story. It shouldn't have to a certain criteria, or you shouldn't have to you know have X amount of kind of person in the movie. It's just tell the story, and it'll it'll tell itself. You know. Yeah, and we'll we'll get into a little bit about you know some of the stuff that maybe should have changed from uh, the return of Ringo, like stuff that they couldn't do today. Right. So this movie was written by Ni Kuang, who we talked about last episode. And then we've got our cast. In this particular film, there's only three Venoms in this movie. There's Kuo Chui, Lu Fang, and Chang Sheng. And um, I want to talk about a little bit about Kuo Chui here. Uh, he plays Kao Yao, who the cook. 
um, who's another amazing character. This guy always plays great characters, and, and I think we've been really enjoying his performances so far. Oh, yes. He was born in Taiwan on October 21st, 1945, under the name Kuo Chui. And like so many other Chinese actors, particularly from this era, he had several aliases, including Guac Jan Fung, John Kwok, Philip Kuo Choi, Philip Kuo Chui, Philip Kwok Sui, and sometimes he was simply referred to as Venom. But of course, if listeners have been paying attention, he's best known here as, of course, Philip Kwong, or as we like to call him, Jared Padalecki's Asian cousin, since the resemblance is so striking. Yeah. <laughs> I, one of these days, I'm going to do a, a side-by-side comparison of, of pictures of these two, because there are so many facial expressions in this movie that, it, to me, it was Sam Winchester. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Now, he he began his career as a circus acrobat and worked in the Peking Opera, but unlike many others, he didn't really aspire to work in the film industry. But he did start working as a stuntman and then eventually worked his way into leading roles. He His performance in Boxer Rebellion caught the attention of direct, director Chang Che, who invited him to play the lead in his film Marco Polo. Then he came to Hong Kong in 76 and joined the Shaw Brothers as a basic actor. But after the Five Deadly Venoms in 78, Kuo had been the male lead and martial arts choreographer in various films, including The Rebel Intruders, Flag of Iron, The Sword Stained with Royal Blood, and Ode to Gallantry, which all those films hopefully we're going to be able to cover on this show. And he was obviously in several other films, including ones that we've already covered. Now, despite his lack of handsome leading man looks, Kuo Chui's skills and his undeniable Charles Brunson tough guy charisma had him regularly playing the lead heroic Venom. Besides being an actor, he also served as action choreographer for many of the Venom films, as well as other Shaw Brothers productions after the Venom gang had disbanded in 1982. With the support of Chang Che, Kuo went back to Taiwan in 81 and founded a film company with his buddies, Chang Shang and Lu Feng, who listeners obviously should be familiar with by now. One of their productions was called Ruthless Tactics in 1984, also known as Ninja in the Deadly Trap, which Kuo starred and directed himself. Like so many kung fu actors, his career slowed down considerably with the demise of the martial arts genre in the 80s, and for a while his career was pretty much restricted, restricted to TV as both actor and action choreographer. Now, this is you'll find this interesting, Pat. More recently, he was... You may remember him as the eye-patch-wearing Mad Dog in John Woo's movie Hard Boiled from 1992, mm-hmm. which now i got to go and watch that one again, because uh, I didn't know him at the time. He was also in the James Bond film Tomorrow Never Dies as General Chang. Again, another one that we're going to have to revisit. He was in The Eye 2 as a Buddhist master, and you are going to love this dude... There was a TV series from 2016 called Golden Arms Returns. Ooh. Yeah. Here's the plot of the show. Golden Arms, once a wanted criminal during the Qing Dynasty, who was later caught by deputized officials and was badly injured in a duel to the death and presumed dead, manages to be rescued by Shaolin monks. He lived within the walls of the Shaolin Temple for 20 years and was later discovered by a renegade priest named Pai Mei, who set out to kill Golden Arms and also destroy the Shaolin Temple. That sounds so cool. I want to see that so bad. And Pai Mei was also the character played by Gordon Liu in uh, the Kill Bill movies. That's right. So must have been a, um, an homage to that or something. Well, no, Kill Bill was before the Golden Elms Return series. That's interesting. Well, I think the uh, legend of Pai Mei is because uh, if you remember that that scene where um, David Carradine is telling um, Uma Thurman the story of Pai Mei, it's the... 
it's the same thing. He's like, yeah, he was on his way. Like he destroyed the Buddhist temple. Uh, he and the White Lotus clan destroyed the Buddhist temple, which definitely sounds like, you know, uh, the, oh, the yeah. plot to a Shaw Brothers film. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. No, let's see, I gotta go revisit Kill Bill again. It's been a while since I've seen them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's been quite a long time. But I, I think Philip Kwok's uh performance here was just outstanding. He's just so good in everything he's in. Yeah, oh I, I totally agree. I totally agree. I I have not seen a bad performance from this guy and you know, like you were saying, he doesn't have like the traditional leading man good looks, but there's this uh charisma about him, like this confidence and you know, he just takes over any scene that he's in, you know, even when it's not, you know, a martial arts scene, when it's just him, you know, just being awesome, like just, you know, conversation or how cool and calm he was, like what we get to see in some of the fight scenes uh, where he's like, you know, he saves guys a couple of times using random items that he's finding in the kitchen. Like, absolutely. <laughs> right. <laughs> And not even breaking a sweat. Yeah, like it's just the easiest thing in the world to him. It's like, you know, playing catch with a toddler. Right. <laughs> so then we've got Lu Feng, who plays Lin, Lin Young Chi. And I thought he does a great job as a villain here. And that's one of the things he's known for is often playing villains because he was just so good at, at doing that sort of a role. Yeah, he he tends to uh, he tends to make a, a pretty convincing bad guy. Yeah. Then we've got Chang Sheng, who played Chi San Yuan. And, you know, I thought his performance here was very reserved because he was trying to be this mature leader of the heroes, not the goofy characters that we've been used to seeing so far. But I don't want to say he was miscast because I, I love everything that he does. But I I don't know. He Didn't he seem kind of like uncomfortable or unsure here? I mean, that might have been part of his performance because of you know, the uncertainty surrounding all the, the masks guys. And, you know, maybe he was, he leaned into that a little bit too much for the character, but, you know, it definitely, it's, it was outside of his, you know, typical wheelhouse, so to speak. And he, right. uh, he didn't, I don't think he was bad, uh, but it's definitely, it's kind of like the movie mad dog in glory where, you know, you have, uh, you know, Bill Murray and uh, Robert De Niro, but like Bill Murray is the mafia guy yeah. <laughs> and Robert De Niro is like the regular dude who's like right. all intimidated and scared. And it's like, that's yeah. <laughs> weird and wrong. Like, like, I don't know who made that decision. If it was a comedy, fine. But like, you're trying to make this, like Bill Murray is the mafia guy. And Robert De Niro is the dude he's intimidating. Like, yeah. <laughs> I don't know about that. No, I'm sorry. Like, and I don't, I've never seen the movie. I've seen like a couple of scenes and it was exactly what I was describing. Him intimidating De Niro. De Niro was like, oh, I don't know. I'm sorry. I didn't know. You know, I didn't know like this was your thing or this was your lady or whatever. And he's like, oh, I'm going to mess you up. And it's like, what? Right. <laughs> Yeah, that was a good movie. Like, who? No. 
And if you, I don't, I don't recall. Well, last time you and I talked, I was kind of recommending if you get a chance, go back and watch Crippled Avengers, which I had covered previously on the show because he, uh, Chang, um, Chang Shang plays an insane guy in that movie, and he does such a great job. He's like almost like a little kid, the way he, with his energy and the way he's bouncing around. Um, he's just it's so yeah, like you said, trying to see seeing someone play opposite of what they normally play is, is kind of off putting, but he did do a good job here. I thought I wasn't trying to disparage his performance. Oh no, no. It's just, you know, it's sometimes it, it can be jarring, like seeing, you know, and I'll, I'll I'll throw this out, seeing a comedian in a very serious role, like Robin Williams in like awakenings or one hour photo or insomnia, or even some of the um, law and order episodes he did. He was a very convincing, like bad guy. I mean, you're used to him being like, you know, obnoxious and bouncing around and, you know, but he's then he's like in Goodwill Hunting and, and right. uh, Dead Poet Society, I think was the other one. Like, yeah, really good dramatic role. Yeah. Yeah. So he's not out of place. He still did a good job. You're like, oh, that's the guy who did all this. Right. Right. But then you see, you know, like I said, Bill Murray as a mafia guy just does not work <laughs> because he was playing it as bill murray playing a mafia right. guy it's like i'm peter venkman well, like jim carrey in the truman show he did a great job there yeah like jim carrey can do he can do dramatic roles like the number 23 yeah really dark really weird um he was able to pull that off right right but yeah it's just certain people have that range and are able to do it other people it's not that they don't have it i just I think they approach all of their roles the same, and it's tough to uh, kind of differentiate. And, you know, maybe they can do it, but they're uncomfortable, like we're talking about with uh, with this film. So one thing about Chang Sheng is that he was the assistant director on quite a few of Chang Che's movies from this time period, as well as helping to produce some of Che's independent films that he made after he left the Shaw Brothers. So, I mean, th- this is this whole team are you know, very talented. Just all of them have so many different talents. Yeah. Like these guys wear so many different hats because, you know, that's what the productions used to be. Like, you know, right. You would have like, this would be considered a big production because you have a huge cast. You have a lot of different choreography. You have, you know, these really intricate set designs. And, you know, a lot of times, like, especially, uh, you know, the one we just watched a couple weeks ago, like, you know, we, like, oh, there's poison coming out of this, you know, this, uh, you know, candle holder. And like, there's, you know, all this crazy stuff that's going on. And, you know, the budget, you know, they weren't getting $100 million for a budget. No, you know? not at all. And a lot of Chang Che's movies, the, the budgets were really low. And if you notice so far, the, the sets have been very cramped, but he manages to make use of the sets fully. Yeah. So it doesn't quite feel that way. Yeah, I totally agree. And and it's um, you know, these guys are doing this, you know, not for like the 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 notoriety or the the, you know, monetary gain. They're doing it because they enjoy doing it. You know, like this is something that they're passionate about and you know, this is something I talk to independent film filmmakers all the time. Like it's like, yeah, I'm the director and I was also the writer and the right. caterer right. and you know, you don't have that huge budget and you know there's certain things that you need to do and if you're a fledgling filmmaker you know you have to you may not trust someone else to 
handle your vision the way you want it handled. Right, exactly. So we've got a couple more actors I just wanted to touch upon. And these guys are considered second-tier Venoms. And second-tier Venoms were usually uh, actors who played like a supporting villain with Liu Fang. And um, I'll put a list of the second-tier Venoms in the show notes. And so far, we haven't really talked about these guys on the show. But when we see them pop up in other films, we're definitely going to discuss them. So you've got Chu Ko, who played the character Liang Young. We've got another guy named Chin Su Ho, who played Chang Chung. And then uh, we've got Wang Li, who played Fong Su Kuang. And I, I thought, you know, overall, the whole cast was really good, especially those three guys were good in supporting roles. Yeah, like, I didn't think that there was a weak link in this cast. Like, everybody was really good. Uh, the fight choreography was good. Um, and they they played off each other, you know, fairly well. Obviously, you know, the, the Venoms are always going to play off each other well because that's, you know, that they have that chemistry and that camaraderie and, you know, Especially when, like, there's a there's an intimacy to a fight scene, especially if, like, you know, you're choreographing it. Um, there's a trust that has to go back and forth when you're doing uh, any type of, uh, you know, physical. Like, even if it's just sparring, like, there's, you know, there's a, it's it's hard to explain unless you've actually done it. Like, right. there's right, a, yeah. <laughs> like for that few moments like you're all out but like as soon as it's over it's like yep you know let's hug it out that was good nice job um it's it's weird you know like did you notice that oh sorry go ahead i was gonna say there's there's no real animosity you know when you're doing these types of scenes like no matter how vigorous or how you know uh, energetic you are in your attacks or your defenses like, even if you get hurt, you know, you're like, okay, that was my fault. I should have blocked low instead of high because I should have known that, you know, I recognize that they did a feint and then like a, a kick or whatever. And like, there's no hard feelings afterwards. It's just, hey, that was fun. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, that, that's the thing, too, is they, you know, they they respect each other for their martial arts skill. And I think that shows in in the fo- in the film. I agree. So I did notice that the dubbing was a little different. Some of the voices were different, and I didn't. I didn't really notice any voices that didn't quite fit the character. Did you? Um, not terribly. Like, there's definitely some. Uh, you know, like with any of these, you know, sometimes it doesn't seem to match. But this one was a lot better than some of the other ones. Yeah, I think by eighty two, eighty one, they really kind of had it down. Now, here's a question for you. Did you recognize some of the background music, Pat? It sounded familiar, but, like, I was more focused on, like, watching the, the, the fight choreography. Oh, okay. Yeah, I couldn't help myself because I noticed it right away, and it was lifted from Mad Max. <laughs> really? <laughs> Which is, yep, that was a soundtrack I've listened to for the past 30 years, so I'm very familiar with it, and I'm like, wait a minute. That sounds familiar. For a split second at the beginning, I was thinking it was from Monty Python and the Holy Grail, and it wasn't. After a while, it dawned on me it was that it was from Mad Max. And I looked it up. Mad Max was in 79, and this was in 81, so they easily lifted it. <laughs> yeah. Um, like I said, there's it was familiar, but I, I've only seen that movie about three times, and the last time I watched it was 
It was earlier this year. I went, I did watched all four of them, but yeah, that's not one that I would have picked up if it was like, you know, you know, a, a John Williams theme. I probably would have picked that up on that. Cause I'm fairly familiar with, with him. Yeah. Right. There's a Jackie Chan film in the back of my head somewhere. I can't think of the name of it, but there's, there's like the end music when Luke is about to shoot the, um, whatever the photon into the death star mm-hmm. the music that's playing there is used in one of in a kung fu film that i saw many years ago <laughs> i was like wait a minute <laughs> oh that like really dramatic like dun 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 yes exactly <laughs> but the um the mad max score was composed by a guy named brian may who for years i always thought he was brian may from queen but it, yeah that's the first thing i thought of yeah but it's not it's he's an australian film composer and conductor and he was a prominent figure in in the australian new wave um, but IMDb says the music here was by a guy named Eddie Wang, or Chujen Wang, as he's credited in the film. So it must have been the parts that didn't use the Mad Max score was, was his music. That makes sense. Now, diving into the film here, the guy at the very beginning that we talked about, he's got one of those swords with the rings on the non-bladed side, like Yang did in The Kid with the Golden Arm. Mm-hmm. And I did a little research, and I came up with the following regarding rings on swords. And I'll just I'll just read this here. The rings were intended to protect the hand from your opponent's blade sliding up the flat of your own. Also, when you hold the broadsword up, the rings hang down, and the center of gravity of the sword will be offset in the direction of the hand, so your hand can control the sword a little more easily. Another interesting fact I found out is that when you're slashing with force, the rings will move forward with inertia, and the center of gravity of the sword will shift towards the direction of the bladed side, thus increasing the slashing and lethality of the sword. Yeah, it adds extra momentum to the to the swing one way or the other. Exactly. Because I originally thought it would throw the... Helps you get back on defense, too. Right. And I thought it would throw the balance off. But there's two other advantages to having the rings also that I found. Um, one was that the sound of the rings somehow uh, would be able to intimidate an opponent. And then also, if you bury the blade deep into something like wood or bone, you could grab the rings with your other hand and forcefully pull the sword out with both hands. So that finally makes sense to me. Yeah, like they're yeah they're fu- like you'll see um, certain spears and stuff would have rings on the end of them for similar reasons. Yes. Yep. Yeah. So I just thought that was interesting. I didn't know what they're called. I know they're Chinese broadswords, but I don't know if there's like a specific name for the ones with the rings on them. Yeah, there was a couple of different ones because when I looked it up, there was it was through the ages. There were varying types of swords. I think this was just a broadsword. Yeah, that's um, they're fairly common. You know, like what we saw in uh, in the last movie where everybody had the the broadswords. Oh yeah, and then you had the. Uh... <sighs> I forget her name, but the the woman that was with the guy that got poisoned, they had uh, Tai Chi swords. Yeah, These right. long, thin, flexible blades. Those are Tai Chi swords. Right, right. That you can just wrap around your arm and then corkscrew into your opponent. Yeah, yeah. That's uh, <laughs> That was the, uh, the number one way that they were used. Uh, just wrap them around your golden arms and then uh, secure your opponent <laughs> like a corkscrew. So now earlier you mentioned uh, the scenery. And the set design, and that was done by in this movie by a guy named Johnson Sow, who I think he did a lot of Shaw Brothers movies, and he's considered an integral part of the look of these movies. And he did a great job here, because not only did he create a, a gloomy atmosphere, but he was able to take, you know, things that had religious symbolism and turn them into a means of torture and death for the victims, like the Buddha statues. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, 
that's that's one of the best ways to show how evil somebody is is by you know perverting some sort of uh right um, you know religious symbol especially if it means something to your victims um you know because i thought that was that was really intense killing the chicken though that that was something i was kind of surprised because they definitely killed that chicken oh yeah yeah i was gonna ask you about that and that on screen you know that seems like it's you know, fairly late. Um, cause the last time I can remember seeing something like that on screen, like actual animal death, is um, Cannibal Holocaust. And I think that came out in 1968. No. So that's significantly earlier. No, Cannibal Holocaust was the 80s, wasn't it? Late 70s? Maybe I'm... Why am I, th- why am I thinking 1968? I don't know. Maybe it's... Uh, let me look it up real quick. Let me, yeah, I'm doing the same thing. 1980, the year before. Yeah. I don't know why I was thinking 68. That's weird. And as soon as I said it, it sounded wrong. <laughs> no, and it, it's, yeah, it was kind of coming to a slow, but um, to a standstill where, you know, people were killing animals on screen. And there were rattlesnakes that were killed in horror movies. And there was yeah. one, and of course, I can't think of the name of it now. Uh, it'll come to me, of course, after the podcast. But there was one where these guys were shooting rats. It might have been Day of the Animals. And they were really killing the rats in the scenes with guns. And that was a little disturbing. Yeah, I mean, for me, in any film, um, I'll watch people get killed all day long. Like, that's fine. But (laughs) animals, no, don't show me that. (laughs) I don't want to see. I don't care if it's, you know, rats or bugs I don't care about. You know, like that scene in um, uh, either Men in Black or... uh, Starship Troopers, where they're stomping on all the cockroaches, like whatever. Right. They're, they're they're insects. They're barely sentient. But uh, right, yeah, no, don't don't be killing animals. <laughs> yeah, kids, fine. People, fine. You know, I I got no problem with that. Right, especially annoying kids. Every time I think when someone mentions kids dying in movies, I just think of that scene from Assault on Precinct Thirteen, where the little girl gets the ice cream from the ice cream truck, and the guy just looks over at her and boom, shoots her dead. I was like, "What? Oh my god!" Yeah, that one was a little. Uh, that was intense. Yeah. yeah, you don't see that too often. Very, very rarely you see. Although uh, Pet Cemetery had a good one. Oh, that's true. Yeah, um, but I thought it was interesting too. I had mentioned it in the synopsis where. They had the sun god symbol, which, as we know, is, is had been perverted and used by the Nazis. I think they even flipped it over. The one shown in the movie might have been the reverse of the way the Nazi symbol looked. But I definitely think that they put it in there just to influence the audience, you know, the modern audience. They, see, I, I think, because I was looking at it and I was like, oh, Nazi ninjas. And I was like, no, that's not... The swastika is part of like it was part of a uh, you know multiple religions, um, right? You know the the Nazis took it and tilted it forward to make it seem like it was like moving forward, like it was progressive, like that was their their goal because it's generally you know flat. But when they turned the symbol to open up the the Buddha statue, that's when it kind of represented like the the. Nazi version, but you're right. It was backwards. Yes, because uh, that's how the original symbol is. Yeah, it's it's unfortunate that that's uh, 
you know, that's the only thing people think of now when they think of that, you know, and right. You know, for some people that is part of their, uh, their religion. And I've seen it on, you know, religious artifacts, especially, uh, like Asian religious artifacts, people who are unfamiliar, they just see it and say, that's a, you know, you're a Nazi. And it's like, it's like, I understand that's what you know it from. And like, there are a lot of people that are like, that are Nazis that will wear, like, oh, it's just a religious symbol. It's like, yeah, okay. Yeah. (laughs) Dumbass. I mean, it definitely, you know, doesn't not make you think of that. But I mean, like, if that wasn't there, if it was just like a regular knob with like, you know, some other intricate design, like a lotus flower, like, you'd still think that they're evil. But when you add in that extra bit of, but it's like, you know, I don't know. I'm pretty sure that the main villains in a Shaw Brothers film are not white supremacists. Just throwing it out there. Yeah, I thought that was interesting. It, de- it definitely had to be something to influence the audience into thinking, oh, the, in, in, into thinking exactly what you just said. Oh, they're bad guys because they have that, you know, the swastika there. One thing I really loved about this movie was lots of nice, fast camera work with the zoom ins and zoom outs. But uh, Chang Che didn't overdo it. I thought they all seemed appropriate when used. Yeah, I think it, it, it worked the way it needed to. Yeah. Yeah. And, and then speaking of his two, uh, Lin's two guards there, I thought it was funny how they're falling asleep while they're supposed to be guarding him, including the dude who's standing up fanning him. And I'm thinking, why is he fanning him? He's asleep. No, <laughs> do you really need to stand there and fan him? <laughs> yeah, it's, it seemed a little, uh, a little much. And he's literally like standing up, falling asleep while he's standing up. I thought that was funny. Yeah, definitely uh <laughs> definitely uh a little much on that one. But it's vital to the vital to the the plot. That's true. So maybe it was just a plot device of having them falling asleep. Now there was one p- plot point I was confused at. Maybe you can shed some light on it for me. So Chi and his gang go there to talk to Lynn and they said Lynn lives lives there but then they're at this hotel which I thought was Lynn's house or you know I thought he lived there but then she's saying you know why would he live here he's 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 not drunk why would he stay here the place was kind of like I guess a cheap motel for lack of a better analogy so I was confused was it that Lynn lived in the town and instead of having the guys to his house they all ended up meeting at the motel or you know Or was it to the point where, you know, knowing that afterwards, in hindsight, that Lin was one of the the chief, the mask's chiefs, maybe he just wanted to keep an eye on everyone and sort of set it up so that when the attacks happen, they know he's sleeping. Yeah. Yeah, you got the deniability there. It's like, oh, it couldn't have been him. He was sleeping. And they even say that later on. Right. But then you've got the old guy. He's got an office there. You've got the old guy teaching the kids, you know, uh, writing. And I just, I don't know. I didn't quite understand if, did he live there or, uh, I don't know. <laughs> that's I guess that's my question is, did he actually live there? I think it was one of those like, yeah, this is my place. I run it, you know, but I also live here. You know, that's, you know, you see a lot of uh, places like that at the Cape where, you know, it's like, yeah, this is my place, but like, I also live here which 
for a lot of people, especially during tourism season, it's like, oh, I have an issue. I need to get it taken care of ASAP. And if, you know, the, if you're in Orleans and the, you know, the person who who runs the place would be in charge is three towns over, you know, it's going to be a while. They got to get up, they got to get dressed, they got to, you know, drive there, you know, but if you're living, if you live there, which, and again, a lot of, a lot of folks do, well, it's even, you know, at my, my apartment complex, like the maintenance people live on site. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. I just was a little confused because, um, they just were like, Ooh, why would he want to live in this place? He's such a rich dude, you know? <laughs> yeah. I think that's because, uh, again, they were trying to create that. It's like, yes, I'm going to stay here. Yes, uh, totally. Definitely. This is, I'm staying here for no other reason. I'm not trying to, you know, be up to something. I'm just staying here. <laughs> this is a fine place. Right. <laughs> well, you know, I just thought of something too, is kind of unrelated, but the title of this movie I thought was a little misleading because it's, you know, the masked, masked Avengers, but they weren't actually avenging anything. You know, if anything, the heroes were getting revenge on the masks for killing all those people. So I went into it thinking they would be avenging heroes who wear masks. <laughs> but it wasn't that at all. Yeah, like, that's the thing that threw me off. Like, the title is like, you know, bad guys in masks that are going to kick the crap out of people. Right. <laughs> well, and that's the original title when it was released in the U.S. It was actually called The Masked Killers, which actually I think is more appropriate. Yeah, like, because that's what they were doing. You know, maybe if you called it the Masked Revengers, like... Right. <laughs> I don't know. So, all right, so now we've got our little setup here where they're in the hotel room. You know, Chi sends his guy, Wang Zhen, to stay in the room next to Ling. And at the same time, he orders another guy, Fang Ying, to check out Lin's office. So, again, I was confused if he's got this whole office. It looks like it's lived in, but anyways... Uh, I thought it was funny, though, as, as Fang is, is searching the office, he lights a piece of paper on fire to use as sort of like a flashlight. Wouldn't wouldn't people smell it? Or was it just common that people lit burnt matches every day and they just smelled that smell all the time? I think it's just something that, uh, you know, they were so used to that, you know, probably didn't uh, probably didn't really notice. Yeah. Well, and I suppose it didn't matter anyways, because Fang gets a trident right through the stomach. <laughs> And then poor Wang's lying in the bed, and the tridents come up from beneath him and send him into the ceiling. <laughs> yeah, like that was pretty brutal. There's, there's a lot of brutality in this movie, and um, a lot of the blood. I noticed the blood. Did did you notice it seemed a little darker than the usual, you know, Technicolor red blood that they use? Yeah, I was gonna say that's a little different. Like it, it but it was also like almost twenty, you know, fifteen, twenty years after some of these other. Well. Not really. I mean, Five Venoms was 76, so this is only like five years later. Oh, I'm thinking, I'm I'm getting them confused with the, the Westerns that are in like the 60s. My mistake. Oh, right, right, yeah. Yeah, I mean, who knows? You know, even Dawn of the Dead was, that was what, 75, I think? Yeah. So they used the, the that kind of blood too, and maybe by the 80s they just decided to make it a little more realistic. So, and we've been introduced to Cow played by, of course, Philip Kwok, as we mentioned earlier. And I I love this guy. He's so cool. He sleeps suspended on a rope. <laughs> All I could think of was um, the, uh, the the thing from uh, Wayne's World 
when the guy at Wayne's World Two, where the guy's sleeping upside down, it's like sleeping up, sleeping like this will add five years to your life. Keith Richards taught me that, which is maybe why today Keith cannot be killed by conventional weapons. Right. <laughs> yeah, that was just funny, and it, it was just so. It was just showed his coolness. I thought, you know, yeah. well, only he could sleep on a rope and get away with it. <laughs> and I love the fact that he he generally ignores everything people tell him to do. They're like, yeah, you're just a cook. Get out of here. And he's like, hmm, okay. And he doesn't get out of there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because he knows who he is and what he can do. And like you said, you know, um, the guy at the beginning, Fang obviously had some plot information because, you know, they gagged him, they stabbed him, they tied, tossed him off the top of the porch. I, I guess you could call it the porch roof. And he's still alive. <laughs> of course. Well, because he's got, in, he's got information. So Right. <laughs> which leads into the awesome fight scene in the kitchen because what's his name? Kyle fall kind of falls off the rope, but he, I think he did it on purpose and he lands on the floor. So when the guys walk in, they almost trip over him and they think he's was on the floor the whole time. <laughs> yeah. So, and this is the scene we were talking about where, you know, he helped save the good guys basically without breaking a sweat. I just thought this was a great fight scene. Yeah. Like it's, it's, he's so effortless when it comes to uh, some of the stuff that he's doing. And it's just like, oh, I'm uh, standing here. And, you know, that guy, I, I noticed that, you know, there's a guy coming in with a, a trident. Right. And, uh, oh, I just happen to have this thing here. And, you know, oh, I stopped you. And it attracts somebody else's attention. Like, he really doesn't do much fighting. He's more like, it reminded me of a Jackie Chan type of fight scene where he's just like picking up random items and using that although didn't he kill a guy with a spatula at one point i think so <laughs> he did finally he flung a knife into one guy's back which was cool yeah it's like what are you doing you're just the cook and it's funny because you know walking into this you're hoping against hope that uh phil quack's character is one of the good guys and and even you know chang chung kind of sees that he realizes what was it he flipped the body over and he saw the knife in the back so he kind of knew that Kyle was one of the good guys, and he couldn't really prove it, but he right away he was like, okay, this guy's on the level, you know? But there were, still, there were definitely still trust issues going on there. Yeah, yeah. And so, of course, uh, Leader Chi assumes that Ling is not one of the mask chiefs because he was sleeping when the attack happened. And they've got proof of that. <laughs> well, kind of. Which I th- right. It's like, oh, it couldn't have been him. He's just off in the distance, twirling his mustache and laughing maniacally. Right. Which that was one interesting thing about Chi's character is that he was very trusting of everybody. He wasn't quick to judge anyone, wasn't quick to assume that somebody, you know, may be one of the masks or one of the chiefs, which I kind of, I like that about his character. Yeah. It, generally, in like, if you're watching a movie like that today, like, there'll be a character that's like, oh, you're far too trusting. And he's like, no, I'm not. Like, I believe in the good in people. And then later on in the movie, the guy that said, you're far too trusting turns out to be a bad guy and, like, stabs him or shoots him or something. Right. I told you you shouldn't have trusted anybody. That meant me. It's like, that's... Right. That's been done 800 times. And it's, it's always delivered the exact same way. Right. I did tell you not to trust me. Then we have a scene where Kao is in the kitchen by himself practicing with the trident when nobody's looking. And then he hides that along with a, one of the masks. And so, 
you know, at this point, we still don't know who he is, but then you're like going, oh, crap, is he one of the chiefs? You know, because he's very suspicious. Yeah, it's like, okay, you have a mask and a trident. It's like, all right, I know it looks bad, but hear me out. It is. (laughs) It's not what it looks like. (laughs) Yeah. It's not what it looks like. It's way worse, guys. He's one of the masks. No, no, no. Okay, yes. (laughs) (laughs) A bit, a bit. Uh, So then we've got... What? It's like no, I, I'm not. I'm not one of the masks. Oh, how dare you! Right, I was number two. <laughs> I was second in command. I'm number two. <laughs> <laughs> so we've got another character named Fong who shows up, and he's a friend of Lin's. And uh, you know, it was kind of interesting because Lin kind of throws him under the bus and says, "Oh, I, I think Fong is is one of the masks." You know? Yeah. Like as soon as he comes in, it's like, "Oh, that guy's a bad guy." Yeah. It's like, wait, how do I know you're not a bad guy? So there was another scene, too, shortly after this that I didn't quite understand, where uh, Chang's walking through the marketplace, and he passes by Cow, and, and Cow's like, he basically warns him, beware the butcher. And Chang goes, well, where can I find this butcher? And and Cow says, I don't know. He looks for me. I look for him. But I'll soon find him. So was the butcher code for the second mask, Chief? That's what I'm thinking. Okay. Because it just seemed like a throwaway scene. I'm like, well, why are they talking about the butcher? <laughs> yeah, like they kept throwing out. That might have been something that got lost in translation. That's what I was thinking because I was like, that's that's different because it did seem out of place. But I'm thinking it's because of, you know, because of that. Oh, maybe, yeah. And it was interesting because um, uh, what's his name? Cal has Chang go back with him, Chang, because Chang wants to help in the kitchen. But he refuses to light the fire. Somehow that was beneath him. I think there was something with the translation there, too. Yeah. But then Cow's giving him, you know, metaphor about being burnt. And, and then Chang comes back at him by accusing him Cow of being a slave. And that pisses him off to the point where he crushes a bamboo pole in his hand uh, without even almost realizing it. Yeah, and it's like, oh, hey, that's, uh, how'd that happen? Yeah. When he first had the bamboo pole in his hand, all I could think of was the scene in the last movie where he's got the five-foot bamboo pole and he's whispering into the girl's ear. <laughs> yeah, like that was kind of funny. So, And then we've got another scene in the marketplace where um, one of the good guys, Yang Chin Pao, uh, he buys a little girl a puppet. And, of course, he gets speared right in front of her through the back, <laughs> which was a little disturbing. Yeah, it's uh, kind of surprising. Yeah. So, but of course it was a setup because, you know, even though Chi is shocked by this, he basically assumes, okay, well, it can't be Ling or Fong because being the mask leaders, because uh, both guys were being watched when all these attacks occurred. So it, it obviously was a setup for, from the masks to prove or to give themselves an alibi, I guess. Yeah. And I, they were kind of smart about it, to be honest. Yeah. Yeah, and then, of course, Kao, um, for whatever reason, he's meandering outside, and he encounters the masks that seem to recognize him, but he plays dumb, and then after a while, he just goes back to cooking, and the the, the masks take off when Chang enters the kitchen, which, that was kind of an interesting scene, because now you're going, wait a minute, is was he really one of them? Was he really one of the chiefs, or, or what? Yeah, like, it, they definitely make you, uh, like, question yourselves over and over again. Like, oh, wait, yeah. is this, you know, how, wait, like, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of this going back and forth. Right. 
you know, like trying to make you second guess what's going on. And I think the acting definitely played uh, played a part in that. This is one of the see. I watched this movie twice, and this is one of those movies that it benefits from the second viewing because the first time through, you have all these questions, and then they're kind of finally answered by the end of the movie, but. It isn't until you go back and watch it again, you go, oh, okay, that's why that happened, and that's why this happened. And, you know, and then it, uh, Chang, for whatever reason, oh, he, he somehow, and this was, I thought, an interesting stretch, he somehow figures out that Cow had previously infiltrated the masks, and, and Chang wants to assist him in taking them down. It's like, well, where did he get this plot information? How does he know this? <laughs> yeah, some of these things seemed a little convenient. Yeah. Um, but and, and, Oh, go ahead. I was going to say, I think, you know, at some points it had to just be um, sort of uh, pushing the plot along because they spent so much time on certain things. And it's just like, all right, yeah, let's just uh, let's just move this along. Right, right. And then Cal says to him that he, he was a chief. And Chang, of course, poo-poos this. And he's like, this is not a joking matter. And, and it, it was funny because at that point I'm like, oh, he's messing with him. He's not really one of the chiefs, you know? Yeah. Yeah, because it, again, it's like he's trying to, um, trying to like again make you make you question what right. is actually going on. Right. So then we've got another guy, Chen Sheng Yang, who gets a trident right through him, but he manages to grab a golden mask off the killer. And um, so now we, as the audience, know that there are three chiefs. I think the characters didn't quite know how many chiefs there were, with the exception probably of Cao. Yes. So I remember thinking, all right, well, then if Lin and Fang are suspects, now who's the third one? Which I thought was a cool plot twist. I, that's what I love about this movie is that it's kind of a mystery movie, you know? Yeah, like there's obviously, you know, the the classic martial arts stuff going on. But at the same time, there's, you know, this this intrigue of what specifically is happening and who really knows what and does he does the cook really know what's going on or right is there something something uh more nefarious afoot yeah yeah absolutely so then you've got the character Liang Rong who he's just pissed that the men are dying he accuses Cao of being a mask and then he trashes the kitchen the kitchen looking for evidence against him and it turns out that Chang had already found the mask and tried and, and then hid them elsewhere but again, you got Chi, who's the voice of reason and not quick to accuse anyone until he has indisputable proof. And one thing I liked, well, not that I liked, but I thought it was interesting about Chi is, and he kept saying this about Kao, that he, he knew Kung Fu and his Kung Fu was good. You know, even simply by avoiding being, getting into a fight with the other guy earlier in the restaurant, it somehow displayed excellent Kung Fu. And I, I thought it was kind of interesting how, that's how he judges people, is whether or not they know Kung yeah. Fu and how good they I are. I mean, that seems to be a, a theme in a lot of these a lot of these movies. It's it's your skill in martial arts as opposed to your you know, any other status that you might have. Right. And I want I I would imagine that that's how it was back then. Uh in back in the day where these these movies take place, is that everything was kind of based on whether you could fight or not because it was very difficult living, you know. You really had to survive. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's kind of like the lawlessness of the old west. Yeah, that's true. It's it's very similar where, you know, the constraints of society were so different. You know, it's not like you know, it's like oh, you know, here's a guy and you know, this is what he looks like. And let's put up wanted posters everywhere. Right. Uh, then we've got Lian Rong and Chi 
end up finding Cow in the woods. Cow is basically leaving. And Liang attacks him first, then yells at Chi to join in. And I thought that was a really great fight scene. Yeah, like, I... Again, there's not a whole lot about this that I did not like. There's, you know, obviously some of the ridiculous, you know, you know overcoming injuries stuff yeah. was kind of crazy. <laughs> but um, uh, other than that, yeah, like, everybody was so good. Like, so good. Yeah. Just all the time. Right. And like you said, you know, there's there's a lot of uh, a lot of the uh, you know the intrigue of you know uh, almost like a whodunit, as well as the uh, you know the aspect of the martial arts plot line. And this whole scene was cool because you've got Chang, you know, secretly helping Cow. He's tossing him his weapon, and then they end up together, and they're like leaping over trees back and forth, and the other two are leaping after them, and they keep missing each other. It was just, a, it was a fun scene, and I, I just love them leaping over the trees with that, you know, that uh, that flapping sound. Mm-hmm. Yeah, some of the uh, the um, sound effects are absolutely crazy. Like, it, it's, <laughs> <laughs> it's just so funny, like, how they do how they do some of these things. I just remember a long time ago, I had a friend that had these baggy pants on and he goes, Hey, look, i sound like one of them Kung Fu guys in the Kung Fu movie jumping. And he grabs the size of the pants and he's flapping them back and forth. And it's making that same noise. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, I think it's kind of funny, but then you still got Chi who's, he's still trusting of Kao and Chang. He just doesn't quite believe that something's wrong, even though, you know, Liang is like, no, they're, they're bad, and he's a he's a mask, and Chang's helping him, which he was. Yeah, I mean, he's, uh, he, he's, again, it's just almost like playing both sides of it, you know, but he had his reasons. He wanted to be the guy who, uh, who took everybody down. Right, exactly. So then we get a shot of the, um, some stuff going on in the temple, and one thing I thought was really cool was they had one of those spiral opening doors, like in Star Wars. But mm-hmm. but the interior edge of the door was razor bladed. <laughs> yeah, the uh, the 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 irising closed almost like a. That's the word I was looking for. Um, like a camera shutter. Yes, I couldn't think of that when I was looking at. It. I'm like, it's a spiral opening door. <laughs> yeah, iris. I wonder if they were influenced by Star Wars, considering Star Wars was in '77. They, if they said, oh, we could do a door like that, only if someone falls into it, they get cut in half. <laughs> yes, yeah, so you, you should definitely, like, do more of those things, like guys getting cut in half by those things. I think there's, um, I think there's a couple that, a couple of movies like that where guys get chopped by, by, um, by doors. <laughs> well, I mean, the, there was a dude in, what was it, The Omen? It was, might have been The Omen 2. He gets cut in half by the elevator. Yep. Yeah, well, elevators they do a lot. Like that's a that's a classic one. Yeah. <laughs> oh man. So the, then, so we're in the temple now, and there's just a weird scene where there's all these cubicles, and the camera's panning, and there's like men, like a man and a woman in each cubicle, sitting Indian style, facing each other, and they're they're semi nude, and the camera just passes by them, and they're all just sort of sitting there staring at each other. There's nothing actually going on. Yeah, it's just so. I didn't know what was going on there. Yeah, I didn't either. I was like, oh, that was definitely part of a scene. Um, <laughs> that's that's interesting. Very uh, very wacky. <laughs> um, okay, then. Well. 
this is what they do in their off time, I guess. <laughs> they're just, you know, robots are recharging. Like, they're part of the android army for a sequel. Or right. <laughs> but now this scene's important because it's revealed that Fang is indeed one of the chiefs of the masks. And, uh, and then he's like, oh, well, I guess the masks aren't necessary anymore. And I'm like, um, okay, why? <laughs> well, we all know who each other are. You know, let's, uh, you know, let's just, yeah, plus mine's really itchy. Right, right. But th- that gets into a, a weird thing that I'll, I'll talk about in a little bit. But I wanted to say that I, I just love the mask's outfits with the, the black and the red. And then you've got, you know, the tridents and then a horned mask. They They do look like sort of an embodiment of the devil. And, you know, you've got this demonic army or, you know, an almost demonic army of figures. Which I thought was cool. Yeah, I liked I liked their uh, their aesthetic. And then all right, so then you've got Kao, back to Cow and Chang, and Cow's telling him the story of how he really was the second mask in the past, and he relates the story that connects to the beginning of the movie with the two brothers, and how they were captured and uh, along with their sister, and how the two brothers died, and the sister was raped by the masks, and Cow did not like that. He didn't want them to do that. He's like, look, we already got paid. To kill everyone in the family, this is above and beyond. You know, almost like it's above his pay grade. We don't need to do this. And, you know, the other chiefs disagreed with him. So then he quits. And he even says, I'm giving my notice, which was funny because I thought, he well, he didn't give them two weeks to find a replacement. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah, it's just like, I'm out of here. Right. Like, And he's trying to figure out who the second mask is. And, you know, Chang, this this actually endears him to Chang because he admires Cao's bravery. And, you know, yeah, all right, you were part of a band of killers, but you you, you, cro- you draw the line at raping women. So I think that's pretty cool. Like, he definitely set himself apart from the other guys. They're like, oh, we can do whatever we want because we have the uh, the power. Right, right. I'm not the rapist. I'm a therapist. Yeah, I mean, like, <laughs> you know, there's a limit, like, you know, it's like, oh, I, you know, I don't mind killing. But, right. You know, and that's, that's a trope that you see with a lot of, uh, a lot of anti-heroes and a lot of movies like this where, you know, like, it's like, yeah, I'm, I'm not a nice guy, but like, I have lines that I'll draw, you know, like, I won't kill women or children, you know, I, I'm not a rapist, you know, it's the, it's the other guys that are like, oh, I don't care, I'll do whatever. It's uh, it's just you know, it's it's a it's a very common trope that you see in all of these films. Like it's it's like stuff like this, you know. You throw Jason Statham into it, like like that seems like the role that he's doing. It's like, oh yeah, I'm a top assassin, but like, oh, I can't kill children, and you know, it's well, as Ringo would have said in a pistol for Ringo, it's a matter of principle. Yeah. <laughs> So at this point, we know now that Lin is chief number one and Fang is chief number three. And we're wondering still who the second chief is if if Kao has quit. So he continues his story to Chang that he recently snuck into. The, I think it was recently he, or if it was pretty much after he quit. He sneaks into the temple and watches as the new number two shows up. So it had to have been some time has passed since, you know, they, they had an opening in this position. And... This I thought I, I thought this was weird. Not weird, I don't know. I don't know if it was weird or confusing or what, but I'll just let me just explain it. So new number two shows up and he's got this body of this dude who's the master of Hai Hu Mansion, his name's Chu Long. And number one and number three ask him, Are you the new number two? 
so and we we've they've established that with the exception of you know one and three now up to this point they nobody knew who each other was under the mask so if that's the case who's in charge is is there a superior that you know hires the new guys you know he puts out a, a thing in, in craigslist and says hey we need a, a number two chief for our, our killer mass killer gang or you know how do you run a, a gang if you don't know who the other guys are at least under the masks yeah like how like their human resources department must be just you know non-existent <laughs> like they have to they have to figure out what's going on right. wait are you number two wait i thought i was number two wait right you know what? What's to stop them each from being like, "Yeah, I'm number one," right? Well, can you be number one? I'm number one. Well, it was the color of the, but it was the color of the beard because they had the three different colors. So I think that's how they delineated who was one, two, and three. Yeah, but who? You know, if nobody knows who is who, what's stopping one guy from you know like, oh, green beard is number one. Well, yeah. you know what? Now, uh, white beard is number one. How about that? You know, I'm number right. one now. Like, what, what are you going to do about it? You don't know who I am. And you could easily infiltrate them. You just put on the mask, kill the guy that's, you know, say the red beard, and say you're the new guy, yeah. you know, or not even say you're the new guy. Just pretend to be him. Come on, guys. It's me. Jer- Jerry, you know. Although they did kind of recognize Kyle at the beginning. His, something about him they kind of recognize. So, I mean, obviously the masks are, they do a little bit better than Clark Kent's glasses, but... It was there was still something there that they recognized in him that maybe they suspected he was number two. Yeah, yeah, but because I think wasn't even in in the scene where they encountered him outside, weren't they saying, "Oh, what are you doing being a cook here?" You know, you you were part of us. Yeah, like they they asked him what his deal was. Yeah, because it's it's weird. Like the inconsistency with the masks is is kind of weird too. Like where it's like. Oh, we all know who each other are, and then it's like we don't know who anyone is. It's like shouldn't one and three still know who each other? Uh, you should still know each other's secret identities, like unless those guys got swapped out too. You know, is it like a Dread Pirate Roberts thing where everybody changes <laughs> each week, you know, or like every time there's a different voyage, it's a new Dread Pirate Roberts, and it's never the same guy? And I don't know. I thought that was confusing. I mean, there had to have then been a superior. To all of them. You know, I mean, even the good guys... Be... Maybe there's like an unreleased sequel. Right. I mean, even the good guys with Cheese Gang were hired to, to to defeat the masks, but we don't really see who or know who hired them to do that. Yeah, which is, again, it's a very inefficient system. Right. <laughs> like, it is just not well thought out. Well, like I said, Kyle gives his notice. He, Like I said, he actually says, I give my notice. <laughs> like, did you submit it in writing? I mean, yes. come on. I've typed up a resume and I have other uh, potential uh, job offers. Right. So the new number two comes in. They confirm that it's Chulong's body and he gets a seat with the other chiefs. And then we've got another ritual, bloodshed. More wine jugs are smashed like they did at the beginning. Ku watched this, uh, I'm sorry, Kyle uh, watched this, but he didn't uh, actually see who number two was. And um, he, he decides he's going to go, uh, even though Chang's begging him to come back. And, you know, he's finished his story and he's like, I'm out of here. And the last thing he says to him is, is basically he tells him that their base of operations is this old temple, 
which apparently he didn't have to give him directions on. They, if you just say, oh, they're in the old temple, then everybody knows where the old temple is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Everybody knows where the old temple is. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's two streets down from the gas station. Yeah, it's right next to the uh, the Dairy Queen. Right. <laughs> so the new number two shows up and attacks Chang. And, of course, Chang at first is thinking that it's Kuo mess- uh, Kao messing with him. I have it written two ways. I have it written as Kao, K-A-O, and Kuo, K-U-O, which I don't remember which way it was pronounced in the movie, so I'll just keep calling him Kao. Um, but Chang thinks it's him messing with him until Masks 1 and 3 shows up, and then he realizes that they're Fang and Lin. And... uh you know, I, I don't know if you noticed this scene. Well, I watched it with the subtitles and as well. Yeah, I did too. And Oh, good. Okay, so did you notice this where Lin says to him, you know, once they defeat him in the fight, he goes, now you can die in, but the subtitles had, now you can die in peace. And I just thought that was odd. I didn't notice that. Yeah, because like I said, I watched it twice and both times I, I saw it where he goes, now you can die in and I don't know if it, it got cut by accident. It must have been an accident on their part when they were doing the dubbing. Yeah, it, you know, there's that seems to be uh, something that does occur from time to time. It's almost like you know, again, losing something in in translation. Yeah, maybe. Although the subtitles knew what it was, so that helped. Yeah, I mean, I could kind of infer what he was saying, anyways. But so, of course, Liang, Liang um, I'm sorry, Chang realizes that Liang is number two, and but he's dying. But he's got plot information, so he's not going to die right away. Right. He's got vital information, so it's going to be a couple of minutes until he can exposit. Then he can die. And you get these two old guys that walk by, and they see him pinned to the tree, and they're like, they don't actually help him. They're just like, oh, crap, we got to get out of here. Like, oh. They're they're talking about it. Yeah. It's like, oh, guy pinned to a tree. (laughs) Pretend he didn't see anything. And then Kao overhears that and rushes back to help him. But, of course, it's too late. And like we said, he gives the plot information to Kao that Liang is the new number two. Every time I, I write that down, the new number two, I keep thinking of the prisoner. Who are you? The new number two. Yeah. <laughs> Who was number one? So, um, Chi sends out four guys to see what they can find. Two of them follow a couple of the masks to the temple. And two of them hide out in the marketplace in... Very conspicuous uh, hiding spots, I must add. Yeah, they weren't overly hidden. They're like, ooh, I hope nobody finds me. Right. (laughs) Over here, next to the laundry room. (laughs) Yeah, it's like you want to be found. I know. You couldn't, like, hide behind one of the fruit stands or something? So they see this dude. He's secretly getting, uh, he gets, like, a little... Uh, I don't know, a trinket that has a symbol on it. And then he gets a trident, which is conveniently wrapped up, and a mask. And then they follow him. And uh, Kao uh, returns to the um, to Chi's gang, and he shows them Shang, uh, Chang's coat and the trident. And he basically tries to tell Chi who number two is. But, of course, Liang, obviously being number two, gets all pissy and wants to kill Kao. Chi so stops him. And as they're talking, I love this scene because this is a, a definite trope that's been used before, but it worked perfectly because Liang messes up and, and basically says, well, yeah, Chang was speared all the way through the chest. And and Cal's like, well, how did you know that? I never said that. I just said this was his coat. Oh, and look, he's standing there across the street. <laughs> it's it's pretty, uh, 
That's pretty weird. Like they, it's almost like they have to like quickly like wrap everything up at the end. Yeah. Because the movie's coming to an end, they're like, "Oh crap! We spent you know the the movie's an hour and a half long. We spent an hour and ten minutes right. on you know backstory and exposition. <laughs> so let's wrap this up in the next ten minutes." That's so funny. Yeah, probably. Yeah, wrote themselves into a corner, and they're like, "Oh geez." So, but I did thought that think that was a cool trick where he he took Chang's body and propped it up to make it look like he was still alive, and that kind of frightened uh, Liang. Yeah. I mean that's you know that's a, a a common trick like using dead bodies as you know in in almost like a, a type of puppetry where you're weekend at Chang's yeah you know almost <laughs> almost like that or you know um, the scene in uh, Game of Thrones where Jack and Hagar helps uh, Arya Gendry and Hot Pie escape from Harrenhal and. They look out, they're like, oh, I thought that none of the soldiers were supposed to be here. And, like, all the soldiers are dead, but they're, like, pinned to walls and, like, you know, propped up with spears and stuff. But everybody's dead, but it looks like they're all standing around, uh, you know, on guard. And it's just, like, the most insane thing. Right. You know, or stories <laughs> you hear from different uh, different mediums. Um, the Dark Tower is one. Um, uh, Dust Till Dawn is another where people use the dead bodies of their friends and they hide under them. Oh, right. Yeah. Yeah. Wasn't it? There was a Gilligan's Island episode where they made dummies because they thought they were going to be attacked. And it looked like there was an army of people there, but it wasn't. It was just a bunch of, you know, dummies with coconut heads or something. Oh, it's like, um, I think the uh, right before the storming of Normandy some information was intentionally leaked to the Axis and they had all these like cardboard cutouts and inflatable tanks in one area to make it seem like this is where we're going to invade and like drew all the forces over there so that when they invaded Normandy, they had less, uh, less resistance because no one expected them to land on Normandy because of all you know, like the spy planes were going over and they're seeing like all this stuff on the ground, but it was all cardboard cutouts and inflatable tanks. Right. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> oh, man. So it's, you know, stuff like that. It's trickery and deception is, you know, a, a huge uh, uh, misdirection is another one. Like it's a huge tactic in any type of battle, especially if. Uh, you are the one who is at a disadvantage. You have to figure out a way to outsmart your opponent any way you can. Because we have no idea how many of these mask guys there are. Oh, yeah. I thought it was brilliant because then, then Liang thinks, oh, shit, the jig's up, and he escapes. Mm -hmm. So then you've got the other two guys who caught the dude in the marketplace, surprisingly, even though they were seemed like they were a little inefficient. And, of course, the guy bites off his own tongue, which somehow causes him to die i'm not quite sure i mean there's a lot of a lot of blood how that's possible maybe he swallowed his tongue and yeah i suppose choked on it yeah <laughs> oh my god i don't know i thought that was interesting i almost wonder i don't know maybe something was lost in the translation there but so he bit off his tongue and died but among his belongings they find the little trinket and cow tells them it's a gathering order meaning that basically all the masks gotta have a meeting at the temple. Yeah. So it's probably, you know, one of those motivational meetings that they usually have. 
where they all smash the wine and light off fireworks and stuff in in a building, no less. Yeah, which is you know, you know, as you do, you know, you gotta again, you know, theatricality and and misdirection. No, here's an interesting thing I thought that may have been a mistake on the translation. So you got cheese two guys who followed the two masks to the temple and they find the sister, the one who had been raped from the beginning. But the two brothers from the beginning, basically the chi- the lead mask tells him, we, we've pretty much got your entire family. You're, you're the 28th or, or 29th and then your brother's the 30th. So everyone in your family's dead except for the sister. So that, but then these two guys are going, sister, sister, it's sister. Oh my God, what are you doing here? So were they part of the family or, or what? <laughs> Yeah, it's uh see and that's the other thing like I hate when uh characters just refer to each other as their familial relationship <laughs> instead of using their name. Like again, the guys at the beginning, brother, Bro- brother, <laughs> brother, brother. Like <laughs> I have two brothers and I don't refer to either of them as brother when we're having a conversation. Right. I don't call my sister sister. <laughs> yeah, it's so it's so weird. Yeah. So they find her though, and she's she's kind of nutty, I think from from just all the raping that's been going on, all the trauma. And yeah, she's exactly you know. PTSD'd out there, and um, but it doesn't matter because she gets stabbed in the mask, but I'm mean, stabbed in the back by a trident, stabbed in the mask. Yeah, like a second later, like oh, we're here to save you. Oh, we did a bad job. <laughs> <laughs> but those two dudes, though, they put up a pretty good fight. Mm-hmm. Uh, before they got captured and tied to booters where they got spun around. Yeah, which is another weird way of getting rid of somebody. You know, I thought, I could be wrong, but when watching that scene, it seemed like they tied the actors to this thing, and then they really spun them. Yeah, which is very uncomfortable. Right. Props to those guys for, for putting up with that. I mean, I don't think they were paid enough to to endure that. <laughs> It's like, okay, we're going to spin you real fast. Wait, what? Right. And here we go. Right. And they tell them that after they tie them up. Oh, didn't we tell you? Oh, yeah, you're going to get spun around. I didn't agree to this. Yeah, you signed the contract. You should have read it better. (laughs) So then the masks, of course, use them as target practice and throw spears at them. And they decide to go out hide in the back, but they're going to leave the two guys as bait because they'll tell the heroes where we went and then we can set a trap for them. So again, it like you're absolutely right. It just seemed like they were sort of rushing into this end fight here. With, you know, the whoops, we spent too much time on setup. So all right, uh, we'll just leave them here, and they can tell everyone where where to go. Yeah, yeah, and they definitely should have. Uh, you know, they should have had more information, and uh, they would have lived longer. Right. And then you know, Leung tells Lin and Fang, Ling and Fang that uh, well, the heroes know our identities, so we better be prepared for them, and. They arrive and find the two guys, and of course they get the plot information from these guys before they expire. Mm-hmm. And here we have our first death by Iris door, where, which, it's not a very efficient door if you turn the knob and it opens, and then you go to step through, and then you get crushed by it immediately. Yeah, it's like you got to be real fast getting through there. <laughs> when we say one at a time, we mean it. And this whole. From here to the end of the movie, even though it's not exactly like it and, and the movie hadn't come out yet, I, I just kept getting shades of uh, Big Trouble in Little China, mm-hmm. where the good guys are going into the temple to fight the bad guys. I wonder. I w- yeah, it would have been uh, would have been interesting. Well, I wonder if Carpenter was a little influenced by this by this movie. Probably. 
So the good guys get into the back room, and of course a beam, it's, it's like a Dungeons and Dragons scenario, because a beam falls from the ceiling and kills one of the guys. And from here on out, there's all kinds of awesome traps, which I really, really enjoyed this end sequence. I think I watched it like two or three times. You know, you get a guy behind one of the cubicle curtains, stabs one of the good guys in the back, and he gets killed. Uh, and then just the, the ma- all the other masks pop out from the cubicles and a fight ensues. Yeah, it's a pretty good pretty good fight scene. Like there's a lot of stuff going on, but you're able to follow the action fairly well. You know, which is again something that we've been praising these movies for over and over and over again. Yeah. Uh, I definitely attribute that to Chang Chase direction. I think he like you said last movie, he just knows how to, you know, follow the weapon to the ground and then back up again, how to show us the long shot when we need it, you know. Mhm. Yeah, and it's you know something that uh, I will never get tired of watching a fight scene where you can actually see what's going on. Right. <laughs> you can follow the action. You know who is who. Like it's lit well. It's you know everything is set up and done the way it's supposed to be done, so that you can actually follow all of the action. Oh, absolutely. I love the fact that she. At first, he's got a fan, and you're like, well, what's he going to do with that fan? And then he's slicing people's throats open here and there, or left and right. Yeah, I was a big fan of that scene. <laughs> yeah, fighting with the fan, because we saw, uh, that's the second time we've seen that, because we saw that in um, Golden Arms as well. Oh, that's true, yeah. It was Iron Robe that had the fan, wasn't it? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, because those things, are, the fans, you know, like, you've seen, like, the... Like the geishas and stuff that do like the little fan dances and, you know, obviously Nichelle Nichols, you know, kind of used a little bit of that in uh, Star Trek. But that's right. Yep. It was like that was literally everything that was being done was a fighting style. Like if you watch Tai Chi and you see people doing like the nice slow Tai Chi in the park or whatever, you speed that up. It's utterly devastating. Oh, that's true. Yeah. Yeah. You know, what I want to know is what the purpose of with the exception of pomp and circumstance, having automated platforms that lower you down. So, you know, you got one of the leaders coming down <laughs> on this platform on the wall, which again, it's not very efficient because it's not very fast if you needed to go up and down stairs in, in the temple. And of course the good guys run at him and arrows shoot out of the wall, like an in Indiana Jones and kill them. <laughs> I mean, you know, what do you want? You want them to not get killed by Indiana Jones traps? I mean, come on. <laughs> which again that movie had been out so i wonder if they they were inspired by that to oh yeah we need we need arrows that shoot out of the walls but we'll make it a lot more i mean maybe not specifically indiana jones because i mean like lots of adventure stories would have that that's true yeah that's true but then you get this other one of the other chiefs which i didn't know who was who coming down the platforms but then he puts on this show where he's swinging around his trident for like five minutes which I didn't get the purpose of. Was that meant to intimidate the good guys? I maybe, but like I, I don't know. <laughs> they're wowed by his skill, and therefore they're stunned and you know vulnerable. Oh boy, this guy's good. I'm running away now. <laughs> right. <laughs> like I know we came here to fight, but pff, screw that. I am out of here. <laughs> But then you've got one of the good guys, and I, I'm, sadly, I apologize to the audience, I don't know the character's name, I should have looked it up, but he was the guy that sort of had the pointy nose, and he goes running at the dude coming down the platform and gets melted by acid, which was pretty cool. Yeah, that was uh, unexpected. I did not, I was not guessing that that was going to be what we saw. Yeah, yeah. 
So um, then we've got, you know, uh, Cow and Chi fighting Fang, and then Leung joins into the fray. And you've got the last of the anonymous good guys get stabbed by spikes on a door. And that was that was a pretty brutal scene. Yeah, there was a lot more... Um, I mean, like in the movies that we've seen with... Um you know, lots of, uh, lots of, you know, weapon play and, and, you know, absolute brutality. This is one of the more, one of the more, uh, you know, brutal and like savage, uh, movies when it comes to people getting killed. Oh yeah. Stabbed left and right. You know, various, uh, various types of deaths. Right. Then Lynn of course shows up with his two bodyguards there and, they don't really put up much of a fight. Uh, Chi kills them pretty quickly, which was kind of funny. But then you get this amazing fight scene, and it was just so awesome to see, you know, Philip Kwok and Shang Chang f- uh, fighting together against the last of the bad guys. You know, you've got, I think, if I remember correctly, Fang and Lin were killed, and then Leung was the last bad guy. Mm-hmm. And he's tossing his tridents into the air. In this sort of Bugs Bunny-esque kind of way where he keeps adding tridents to the ones that are already spinning up in the air. <laughs> but then it was cool because then Cow and Chi grab him. You know, one grabs his arms, one grabs his feet. They spin him around and hold him up. And then all the spears come down at once, killing him. Yeah, I just, which I loved that. is exactly how they planned it. And then it just ends. Like, it's the movie pretty much just ends. Right. <laughs> and then it ends. Yep. Which is so weird, like, you know, you have, like, very little when it comes to, uh, like, closure in these films. At least, like, in a Western, you'll see the the hero ride off into the sunset, but with these, it's just like, (laughs) nope, it's over, done, get out. Right. No denouement. Yeah. You don't have to go home, but you can't stay here. (laughs) Yeah. Get out. Get out of the theater. We need to to play the movie again. Oh, man. But I just thought this movie was just so much darker, more violent than we've seen before. I really loved it. Uh, I think the combination of Chang Che and the Venom Mob, they just work so well. And this movie is a good illustration of that. Yeah, I, I like it. I thought it was a, a lot of fun. I thought it was, uh, it was you know, it had the, the perfect blend. Like we keep saying, you know, it was the action. It was, you know, the martial arts prowess on display. And then it was all the... Uh, the additional stuff that was in it, you know, all the uh, the extras and right. I appreciated that. Right, you know, and we we nitpicked a lot of little things here and there, but I, you know, don't just talking to the listeners. Don't let this uh, fool you. These this movie was awesome, and I highly recommend it. Oh yeah, yeah. I just I don't want to be sitting there like yes, everything about this movie was perfect and it was wonderful and flawless. It's like, cause there's no such thing as a perfect flawless movie. You know, like we had that conversation about Jaws, like yeah, there's even mistakes in that. So exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I, I definitely recommend this as well. Excellent. Excellent. All right. Well, we're going to take a break here. And when we come back, we're going to talk about the return of Ringo. For a spine-tingling, nerve-shattering podcast featuring all your favorite monsters. You won't believe your ears when you listen to Monster Monster Kid Kid Radio. Hear your host, Derek M. Cook, and his ever-rotating stable of guests discuss your favorite classic and sometimes not-so-classic monster movies. 
Subscribe to Monster Kid Radio through iTunes or Stitcher. Or visit monsterkidradio.net before the next weekly episode of Monster Monster Kid Kid Radio. Go through the archives for interviews with Sarah Karloff, Victoria Price, and Joel Hodgson. Listen to discussions about movies like Creature from the Black Lagoon, Island of Terror, and King Kong. And don't forget convention coverage from Monster Bash and the H.P. Lovecraft Film Festival. Classic Monsters. Modern Talk. And the head of Rondo Hatton. Only on Monster Monster Kid Radio. Okay, next up is The Return of Ringo from 1965. It's the sequel to A Pistol for Ringo, which we covered last episode, and most of the cast returns, albeit in different roles, except for Giuliano Gemma, who returns as Ringo. Director Duccio Tassari returns also, and gives us a very different film than the first one. You first saw him in A Pistol for Ringo. Ringo, the greatest hero of the West. I've come back. One day with my heart, heart full of pain. I've come back. Look in the faces. Look at me. We all make mistakes. I'll explain afterwards. You must tell me. already dead with fear. Not yet, but they'll soon be dead. If you really abandon them. Look at me, Hallie, and count the Mexicans who are living here. It's no contest. What if the Fuentes hurt you? It's too much for just one man. And I've got a bad gun hand, too. Here he is again, fighting a single-handed battle against injustice. Ringo returning to save his honor. Ringo, returning from a long, grim war. I was dead. pro nobis. Who are you? No time now, Sheriff. I'll explain afterwards. Why don't you arrest him, Sheriff? Well, how about it? I wouldn't mind helping you. On behalf of the Sheriff, and in the name of the law, I place you under arrest. (laughs) You must agree, Sheriff, it isn't difficult. Just make up your mind, that's all. I'll even help you to take them all off to jail. The Return of Ringo. An exciting motion picture with an unforgettable cast. Montgomery Wood as Ringo. Harry Hammond as his faithful wife. Nieves Navarro as the beautiful, cruel Rosita. George Martin as Paco, the 
bloodthirsty gunman. Antonio Casas as the valiant sheriff. Fernando Sancho as Esteban, the ruthless bandit leader. The return of Ringo, the greatest of heroes in the greatest of westerns. Don't miss the return of Ringo. Yeah, so, uh, uh, this is not a traditional sequel, uh, as far as I'm concerned. But uh, we'll go into the uh, we'll go into the uh, the synopsis here, and uh, you helped me find a a very very handy tool. Uh, a lot of folks are familiar with the Internet Movie Database. Well, there's a Spaghetti Western uh, database. It's spaghetti-western.net, uh, and I was able to find a. Uh, Return of Ringo review, which actually helped me out a lot. So this is a, a, apparently the only official sequel to A Pistol for Ringo, which, as you said, uh, stars, stars Giuliano Gemma. And apparently this is a loose retelling of uh, Homer's Odyssey. And uh, Gemma, who is credited in this as uh, Montgomery Brown, um, plays the Odysseus slash Ulysses role. So he is returning from the Civil War, where he was thought to be dead. Uh, he finds, finds his house overrun by bandits, and his wife is engaged to one of the leaders. Um, so his, his, uh, his mission now is to not only get rid of all the bandits in his house, but wants to find out if his wife has been faithful to him. And... This is kind of a weird thing because if she thought he was dead, I mean, I guess it's it's you know she's very young. Uh, it, it's reasonable for him for her to have moved on, you know, especially in the in the old west, um, and especially if you know any type of western is to be uh, taken as a, a reasonable facsimile of what was going on at the time. Um, it's better for uh, women not to have been on their own, especially with uh, marauding bands of uh, bad guys, you know, roaming the countryside in essentially what's lawlessness. So it finds out, uh, he finds out, uh, Ringo does, that uh, his wife has been faithful to him. Right. He has a daughter. And uh, the daughter is being used by the bad guy, Paco Fuentes, played by George Martin, uh, to kind of keep Holly, uh, I'm sorry, Hallie in check and, you know, kind of get her to be compliant to him. And the thing that I really, I, I have to talk about, I have to slightly interrupt this because it threw me off because Hallie is played by Lorella DeLuca who, like you said, you know, the, a lot of the cast returns from the first film, but they're all playing different roles. And it really threw me off because I'm watching this and I'm trying to figure out why he married the sheriff's fiance from the first movie and how sure. that happened and when they had a kid. And because there was some underlying tension between the two of them in the first film. But I, I was so thrown off. Um <laughs> Also, his disguise uh, is essentially uh, 
him not quite in blackface, but he uh, definitely darkens his uh, fair complexion, dyes his hair, grows a beard. He looks a little bit like a certain presidential son. Uh, and that was like the first thing, because I was like, wow, that's a terrible beard and a terrible fake tan. Yeah, he looks like, as they call him in the media, DJ TJ. Um, but yeah, I, there is a scene where he has to eat raw meat because he's pretending like he needs a job to infiltrate the, uh, the gang that has taken over his home. Um, it's weird. So he's not by himself. Uh, he is aided by a supporting cast, which is, uh, according to the, uh, Spaghetti Western database, a who's who of the genre. So there's, uh, George Martin, uh, Fernando Sancho, who played Sancho in the first film, uh, plays his brother, and he's pretty much the same character from the first film. You know, he's this underhanded, despicable, sleazy guy. Antonio Casas comes back as the defeated drunken sheriff, and that's, you know, he played uh, uh, Lorella DeLuca's father, the major in the first film. I did like, uh, they show him drinking in one scene, and he's got a bad right arm, so he is able to fill his shot glass with whatever hooch he happens to be drinking. And with his left hand, pulls on his scarf to lift his uh, drink up to his hand, or up to his mouth. I would say it would probably be easier just to use your left hand, but, you know, if you came up with this great idea, it's like, well, it would be easier to just do this left-handed. But, uh, you know, I'm going to use this uh, elaborate pulley system in order to get hammered. (laughs) We see uh, Nieves Navarro back as Rosita. And uh, she looked a lot different in this, probably because she didn't have the black hair. But I was like, man, she looks familiar, too. And then going through the cast list, I was like, wait, she was in the last one? So we see multiple times throughout this film where... Ringo puts himself in an odd situation and does something completely different. This is a completely different Ringo that we see, and you could chalk it up to his time in the war, but we eventually see him, you know, kind of going back and forth between trying not to uh, expose his identity by trying to find out whose daughter this is, you know, and then he does find out that it's his daughter, and he exposes himself to his wife, well, not exposes himself, but Reveals his identity is probably a better uh, term, but there's also this weird love triangle thing going on with Rosita, and, like, you're not sure where his loyalties lie, which is an odd thing for this character, because he had a very strict code in the first film, and now this one, he's trying to infiltrate a gang to make sure his wife's been faithful to him. He attends his own funeral, which is very interesting. But, you know, he's in several compromising positions with uh, Rosita. Then you don't know where she stands, and they finally figure out who he is, and the gang absolutely just kicks the pudding out of him. And then they talk about cutting his hand off, but they don't cut his hand off, but they do mangle his, uh, his gun hand. And then there's the, of course, the final confrontation where he exhibits some insane Shaw Brothers level of fighting skill that was previously unknown. 
So this, I know this is not the best synopsis, but this was a very confusing film because it's supposed to be a sequel, and you have all these characters, or all these actors that come back. You know, Giuliano Gemma is the only one playing the same character. You have Fernando Sancho, Nieves Navarro, Antonio Casas, Lorella DeLuca, and they're all playing different characters, but they look and sound the same, with the exception of Nieves Navarro. She at least changed her hair color. And the plot is very convoluted. It's like they added a lot of stuff to kind of try and stretch it out. Uh, and they changed the character of Ringo around, uh, which I'm sure you noticed because in the first one we talked about this, he refused to drink alcohol because it dulled the senses. But then he's pounding whiskey like there's no tomorrow. This was... Uh, I found this one to be confusing, and I did not like it as much as the original. Obviously, you have uh, Duccio Tassari comes back, and the incomparable Ennio Morricone does the score. But, uh, yeah, I was not a fan of this one. Interesting. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. I Oh, sorry, continue. I was going to say, like, there was some good action. There was some, there was some, nice, uh, some nice fight scenes. It was, you know, choreographed pretty well. But it didn't have any of the charm or, you know, just easygoing uh, back and forth between the characters that the first one had, at least in my opinion. I thought the characters were much more fleshed out in the first one. These, these characters just seemed like caricatures of Western characters. And again, I guess you could chalk it up to the fact that he's coming back from, you know, fighting in the Civil War, which that also does not seem like it's anywhere remotely close to being in Ringo's character. And then he gets sick or injured or something at the beginning of the film, and he, after finding out that, you know, they think his wife is dead and these gangsters move in, and we see this really cool scene where he's in a bar and he just, what we think, for no reason, shoots two guys dead who are, you know you know, sitting at a card table, and one guy's doing the little knife game where he's, you know, moving the knife back and forth on the table between his outstretched fingers, uh, similar to what we see uh, Bishop do in uh, Aliens, only much, right. much slower. And it turns out that one of the guys he shot had a gun trained on him, and he must have heard it cock or whatever. And it's like, oh, yeah, badass Ringo, he's back. And then we don't know what happens you know, he finds out about his wife or, or, and then he wakes up like he's been sick or injured for a while and then walks over to a, a, a pot that's hanging over a fire and sticks his hand in it and he pulls his hand out and it's like it's covered in blood. Like what was in that pot and like if it was something they were going to eat, I don't think they're going to eat it now. And then he pulls off his wedding ring and drops it on the floor like he's so devastated. And, like, that's when he right. decides to go find out whether it's what. But, like, it's such a weird thing to do. It's like, oh, I'm going to take this wedding ring off. But first, <laughs> let me stick my hand in a pot of chili or whatever the hell they were eating. Well, all right. Well, let, let me explain. Uh, let me get at least give my opinion first. I um I really enjoyed this movie. I, I think it um, I liked it as equally as the first one. But they're two completely different films in tone. A couple things. I think that. 
Ringo was a much darker character here because of his experience in the Civil War. I think he was suffering from a lot of shell shock or, or PTSD, as they call it today. And that's sort of why he kind of lost that humorous edge, at least in my mind. That's what I took away from the film. I, and I was majorly confused walking into it, too, but not for the same reasons as you. I was able to wrap my brain around the fact that the you know, the actors were playing different characters except for Giuliano Gemma. And that, that sort of reminded me of the Shaw Brothers again, because we've seen the same actors play different characters in several movies, except they weren't sequels. I think there's only a handful of Shaw Brothers films that have sequels, like The One-Armed Swordsman and 36 Chamber of Shaolin. But um, that didn't bother me. What confused me was I didn't recognize him at first, because when he walks in at the beginning, he's got blonde hair. And I'm like... Is that him? I couldn't quite recognize him. Well, Ringo wasn't blonde. He had kind of reddish-brown hair in the first one. So that that threw me right away. And then I don't know if I just wasn't paying enough attention to the events of what was going on at the beginning because then when he shows up in quote-unquote disguise with the darker skin and and he's got brown hair and a brown beard, again, I was, wait a minute, is that him now? And is the other actor... A different guy. So I was really confused the first time I watched this. And I literally had to just stop and go and read a a synopsis of it online and then come back. And then I watched it again, and it all made more sense now. So remember the bartender at the beginning that helps him? Yes. Okay. That guy goes to the Indian character and says, I need medicine for a sick friend. And the guy... He tries to pay him, and the Indian says, no, it's it's free because you said it was for a friend. Yeah. And when he brings it back and we get back to the bar scene, or I guess it's a bar or restaurant, whatever it is, he's putting that stuff into the pot that Ringo ends up sticking his hand in. And when I looked at it on the second viewing, it wasn't food. It was the, the, the dye that he used not only to dye his hair but to tint his skin as well. Okay. So that makes some sense. So they had made this plan, but they just didn't tell us what the plan was. Right, because it's like, why, what are you doing? Why Why is this happening? And if it's medicine, why is it in the skin dye? But yeah, you, you, you're right. Like, seeing him, it's like, okay, he's this character, and he looks this way. Right. And then he puts on the, the disguise and looks completely different like wait a minute like i didn't recognize him at first either maybe my issue is i've only watched this once i should have maybe i should have watched it a second time to really get more of a a feel for it but you know like you were saying you know his actions in this yes I, i i agree i think that he was his actions were informed by his experiences in the civil war right but the ringo we saw in the first movie He's, you know, his whole thing was, I'm not going to do anything unless I get something out of it. What was he getting out of joining up and fighting in the Civil War? Like, right. That's an untold story. We don't know why he did that. Right. It, like, that to me seems like a seismic shift in his character. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, and one thing I didn't get that you mentioned in the uh, synopsis was the fact that he was checking to see if she had been faithful or not. I totally, even on both viewings, didn't get that until I did more research into the film afterwards. Yeah. Cause he even asked her, he was like, you know, he asked her about the, the daughter and this and that. Like he was like, he wasn't coming right out and saying it. It was more implied, you know, maybe it's if 
we spoke Italian, we might have gotten some more like subtlety and nuance from it. Right. Right. So yeah, so I thought uh, that's was my take on it. I I was okay with. I think I walked in. I had read that this film was darker in tone, anyways. So I kind of walked in with that in the back of my head. So it, that didn't bother me as much. Um, and as we'll explain, as we discuss the film later on, we do get a little bit of the original Ringo kind of returning in different scenes too, where he's starting to maybe come out of his PTSD as things are starting to move in his favor. So before we, we really dive into the film, let's just quickly go over the cast again, as uh, you kind of did that pretty well. You know, um, he's, of course, listed again as Montgomery Woods, and his character is also called Montgomery Brown. Oh, and that was something I wanted to address, too, that you had mentioned you were confused about. When he goes to the graveyard at the beginning, that's his yes. mother and father okay. that he sees in the graveyard. And the, his father was a senator, and again, that was a scene that I didn't really get until... Uh, the second viewing that when he found out that the father had the way the father had died, that really sets him off and sets him on the path to go after the Fuentes brothers and, you know, take them down. There was one thing, too, I wanted to mention. I don't think we talked about and it came to mind as I was watching this film in the first one in A Pistol for Ringo. There's one scene and this is completely unrelated to what we've been talking about thus far. But do you remember there was a scene where he mounts the horse from a standing position in one leap? And I, I just, I forgot about that. And that's one of those scenes that it's like, oh my God, that like, that's how awesome he was in the first movie. Yeah. I didn't remember that at all. You know, is he's literally just standing there boing. <laughs> yeah. I didn't remember that, but yeah, I think it's, it's kind of cool that, uh, that they had that in there. Yeah. And, um, Lorella DeLuca was credited as Hallie Hammond here. That threw me a little bit because her character's name was Hallie too. And I don't. I'm sure there was a marketing reason for that, but I just didn't uh, just keep your name, you know? <laughs> yeah. It didn't make any sense to me. Like I thought that was kind of weird, but, uh, again, like this, the whole, the whole film was kind of, um, weird. It's, it's like a non sequel, but it's a sequel. It's like, again, you know, like you were saying with the Shaw brothers films, like, yeah, it's the same actors over and over playing different movies, but it's like, it's different movies, different plots. They're not sequels. They're not linked together. Like, I'm fine with that. You know, like, that's the right. job of an actor. It's like, you know, I don't get confused. Like, if I'm watching Jackie Chan in, you know, uh, Who Am I? And then I'm watching him in, you know, Rumble in the Bronx, and I might see the same actors in it. But I know that these are two totally different characters. Like, it's so weird watching, it'd be like watching, you know, Star Wars, you know, you watch, uh, you, you watch A New Hope, and then everybody comes back, uh, you know, and Mark Hamill's still playing Luke Skywalker, but, you know, Harrison Ford is a, is a random guy that's not, uh, you know, Han Solo, and Carrie Fisher is not Princess Leia, and it's like, you know, it's like, oh, my name's uh, Jeff star speed and i'm a right. <laughs> you know pod racer it's like yeah but didn't you where's chewy it's like, i don't know what you're talking about <laughs> like, aren't you han solo nope and like instead of like being like all hopeful right. and, and you know like i'm gonna convert my dad to the to the light side luke was just like oh i'm really into gambling and you know i don't know like it, it'd be it'd be weird and then he showed up like in Wookiee face, 
you know, it would be weird. <laughs> That's funny. So um, I just want to comment quickly on Nieves Navarro, who played Rosita. I thought she was better looking in the first film with the black hair Yep. than this. Uh, but to me, the standout character was, and I, I had neglected to really look into him when we watched the first one, was um, the guy who played Morning Glory. Uh, he, his real name was Manuel Muniz, but he went by Pajarito in this movie, which means birdie in Spanish. And I think he he used that in a couple of other movies. Yeah, Little Bird. He's also in Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, which I would love to cover if I can get my hands on a copy. Uh, we, we should cover that over and That Is Now. He was in a few other westerns, Dynamite Jim, Let's Go and Kill Sartana, and uh, another one titled Watch Out Gringo, Sabato Will Return as well as uh, quite a few other spaghetti westerns but i thought he was the standout character in this movie i i kept like getting excited when he did something cool yeah he didn't do a whole lot i mean the the most memorable thing i remember from him was like oh you can stay with me unless you find something better <laughs> it's like cool and he's like no i can't stay here right right i will say one of the funnier uh, parts of the movie like the one of the more inexplicable parts is when they're kicking the crap out of him earlier in the in the bar. Rosita's kind of just watching because you're like, oh, she double-crossed him because she definitely seemed to be, uh, you know, intrigued by him at the very least. Right. And he takes the flower and sticks it in uh, <laughs> in uh, Sancho's gun there. Right. And I was like, okay, that's kind of funny. I was like, <laughs> That was good. That was like a little bit, a touch of the old Ringo, I thought. Yeah, yeah. But again, he was <laughs> pounding whiskey and bourbon the whole movie. Like, totally not in his character. Like, he wouldn't drink with a gun pointed at him in the first film. And this time he's just like, you know, somebody pours him a drink. Uh, the sheriff there pours him a drink and he like grabs the guy's hand and like makes him pour more. Right. I, I took that to me and I, I chalked it up to the fact, like I said, that he had suffered trauma in the war and, you know, that's why he's darker. He's he's lost that edge. At least that's how I rationalized it when I was watching it. But I, I agree because I noticed that right away. I was like, wait a minute. He drinks milk. <laughs> yeah. And again, like it, it seems like a forced character evolution because, again, I don't think he would have ever gone off to fight in the war because it's just not in his character to do so. Exactly. Yeah, there had to have been a good reason. And it's too bad they could have they could have easily explained that with one or two lines of dialogue. And, you know, oh, your his brother was in the war and he wanted to go and help the brother out or something, you know. Yeah. Yeah, it uh it was like I'm all for character development, um but, you know, character development under the guise of you know, we need this guy to be different for the plot and we need to capitalize on the same, you know, the same character. Like if this movie hadn't been called, you know, the return of Ringo, like if it had been called, you know, you know, you know, pick any other, any other name and like, you know, like, you know, have, you know, that person's return, you know, like, you know, Steve's return, you know, <laughs> like he's returning from the war. It would have been a much, better film because like i said you know i was so confused watching it at the beginning and seeing that like it's like wait a minute he's married to the girl from the first one 
that like yeah. they kind of like he flirted with her, but she really wasn't receptive, and like they have a kid, like right? Yeah. Why? When did that happen? And like, where's that guy? And and I'm pretty sure both movies came out in the same year. I think it was they were both in '66. It's not like it was like ten years later, and they came back and made it. <laughs> yeah, both in '65. Yeah, I mean like. If it was like one of those weird towns where like, you know, from like Stephen King where like everybody is a twin, like that's fine. Like that happened in, you know, one of his novels that's essentially a Western. Right, right. Now there was um there was one of the credit that was listed on Wikipedia and it didn't make any sense to me. And it was sort of at the bottom of the list and it said Mark Smith as Captain Montgomery, quote unquote, Ringo Brown. And I was like, what? Because, you know, Giuliano Gem is listed as Captain Montgomery Ringo Brown at the top. I couldn't find anything on that. I have no idea where the hell that came from. <laughs> was, unless maybe that was as the a stunt, stunt double or something. Or yeah. Maybe he stood in for him at some point. It must have been. Mm-hmm. So that was really bizarre. But Ennio Morcone, as you mentioned, returns to do the score. And I thought the theme song here was much better than in A Pistol for Ringo. Yeah, still not as good as Django, but it was it was easier on the ears. <laughs> and what I loved about the score in this movie was he used it so well because it it you know a lot of it appears in a lot of different forms where he's got these you know heart wrenchingly emotional instrumental pieces during scenes of intense melodrama, but then it's also used differently in the action scenes. And there was even a scene later on where Ringo opens up the music box and we hear the the theme song kind of tinkling away from the music box and then it just sort of uh, fades into the background score which is the, which are the same notes and i really really love that scene yeah i mean the fact that ennio morricone only has one oscar for his work is is an absolute crime um, oh yeah because i mean you can't talk about soundtracks and scores with you know between him and john williams and you know there are very few who have contributed as much to, you know, iconic, you know, music and, and, you know, you hear it and you immediately like a, a, something pops into your head. Like you hear the theme from the good, the bad and the ugly. And you immediately just think of like a gunfighter. Oh like, yeah. I've never seen that movie, but I hear that song and I, I see Clint Eastwood and I see him like with his poncho, like, standing ready to draw his guns and you know that that classic shot where you see him in the distance and you're like right behind his opponent like that's what i hear you know and you hear you know like you hear the jaws theme and you immediately you're underwater you know it's like that's how iconic uh, morricone was oh absolutely and if you've never had a chance to check them out and and i'm gonna say this to the audience too it's something that i've been meaning to bring up um but we haven't really uh it hasn't really been a topic but there's a a group out there called the Spaghetti Western Orchestra, and they're from Australia, and they play all Morricone music from various westerns, including, you know, the Clint Eastwood trilogy, they're the Dollars trilogy, and and they're really good. And they dress the part; they look like old west guys with with white faces, almost like they're ghosts of old west guys, and they're really phenomenal. If you get a chance to check out their stuff, it's on YouTube, and um. You know, it really just shows you how iconic Morricone's music is and how he didn't just use standard 
musical instruments. He used all kinds of things to make the music, and it works. Somehow he makes it work. Yeah, that's uh, that's something that um, I've noticed with um, a lot of composers, especially like the last few years, uh, you know, maybe decade or so, like uh, Ramin Javadi, who does uh, all the music for Game of Thrones and Westworld. Um, we got a chance to see him live and see, uh, you know, he was doing the Game of Thrones music and he was showing some of the stuff that they use. And like one of the things they use, they called it a, uh, a wildling horn, but it was a 14 foot horn. Like, oh, you know, it, it was all reminiscent of the uh, the horn that Gimli blows in the in the uh, battle of uh, Helm's Deep. Oh, wow. Like it was just like this huge, long horn it was just like that's so cool and like you know he he would describe some of the things like oh this is what we used for this and it's called a hammer dulcimer and it's like what like, <laughs> like i know guitar and drum like <laughs> you're breaking stuff out that i've never even heard of like that's right. crazy and that's where these guys you know these guys are using these uh experimental sounds and, and um, different instruments to enhance the emotion of what's going on. And like, that's what you're saying with Marconi. He's using stuff that's uh, you know, non-traditional uh, and it really lends, you know, more weight to the music, especially with the scenes that are going on. And like, yeah, some of the scenes might be overacted or, you know, kind of hammy or, or, or whatnot. But I mean, that's what's supposed to be happening you know, like it's that's the the style of the film. But I thought this film was very well acted. Yeah. Um, like I said, I think I would have enjoyed it much, much more had it been something other than an attempted sequel. Yes. To a pistol for Ringo, which I enjoyed quite a bit. Um, you know, again, I keep going back to the fact that it's all the same actors, but playing different roles in a sequel. <laughs> and even the lead actor, like. Why does he look so different? <laughs> well, and that's one thing I, I wanted to bring up, even though even though as we talk about it now, it just seems kind of negligible. But when he first walks in and he's blonde, mm -hmm. I'm thinking, they didn't have hair dye back then. And it was really bugging me to the point where I finally looked up the origins of hair dye. And apparently it goes back to 1500 BC where the Egyptians actually created hair dye. And... But they only had black hair dye until the Roman Empire, and that's when they sort of invented the other colors. And then there was a dude in the 1800s that sort of streamlined the process, and it's actually the same formula that's used today for hair color. So it, it is very possible that, you know, Ringo could have dyed his hair blonde. Why you would dye your hair blonde and go off to war, I don't know. But <laughs> it, it made sense that it actually did exist. Maybe he suffered some sort of traumatic head injury that we never saw because it was off screen and it complete or, you know, he settled down and got married and had a kid. And I mean, obviously his wife got pregnant prior to him. Uh, she was probably very early on in the pregnancy when he left to go fight in the war. But like, that's what I figured. Yeah. He didn't look like a civil war guy. And it's like, you're in the old West, but you're also fighting in the civil war. Yeah. I'm a little confused by that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's around the same time frame. I mean, the civil war was what the mid 1860s. 
So that would have been right around when the Wild West was going on. It just seems like the position, like, again, just another, like, it's like, you know, people throwing, you know, darts at a, at a, at a, uh, like a whiteboard full of ideas. It's like, okay, he's a blonde Civil War Old West. There we go. (laughs) It's like, wait, what? It's like an improv, it's like a, uh, like a bad improv act. Yeah. I heard Civil War and uh, Mexican Invasion. Right. <laughs> Why do I picture Ryan Stiles and Colin Mockery walking out and performing the scene? <laughs> yeah, right. So let's dive into the, the story here uh, a little bit where, you know, at the beginning now, when he first walks into that very first bar and he's asking the bartender... Um, if he remembers him, I thought they had an interesting conversation here because it felt like the bartender was speaking in code because um, all of a sudden the bartender kind of stumbles and he goes, oh, oh, yeah, we met like, uh, I don't know, like seven or eight years ago somewhere. I, I remember you. And he kind of motions with his eyes towards the two guys in the room. So, you know, again, it was something I didn't notice till the second viewing, but I think he was kind of giving he knew who, exactly who Ringo was. And he was giving him code that those guys were were going to kill him. Yeah, I thought so too. Like I thought that uh, he, um, <clears throat> like he was either motioning to them that uh, you know it was a code, uh, like, "Hey, I know this guy. Don't rob and kill him," or "Yeah, I know this guy." definitely rob and kill him right but if he had said oh yeah you're ringo and you know i remember you it it would have he would have been dead right there ringo yeah <clears throat> yeah yeah weren't you the guy that killed all those dudes you know <laughs> apparently three ish years ago right <laughs> i mean all right so he's married with a three-year-old at this point so he's he has to have been with this woman for at least four years, maybe, you know, probably longer. Right. So this is probably taking place six, seven years after the events of the first movie. Right. And he looks right. exactly the same. Right. We didn't get a time frame in the first movie as to when it took place. But it's definitely like, you know, giving the, you know, the fact that he had $15,000, the fact that, you know, he was completely single and unattached, even if he rode away with his 15,000 and went to another town and met this woman right away. And they fell instantly in love and they eloped the next day. You're still talking four years minimum. Yeah. And the girl, the girl had to be a little bit older than three because she was, you know, at a later point helping him load his gun. (laughs) Right. It wasn't, it wasn't her third birthday when you saw her. Right. Like, so just, even if we were to say, because she looked like she was probably six or seven, the way she spoke and carried herself. Yeah. So realistically, it's probably been 10 years since the first film, <laughs> and he just looks blonde. Right. <laughs> so, like, yeah, I didn't even think about that until, like, now. It's like, wait, what's the actual time that has passed? And if the time has passed and you haven't seen this guy... It's like, oh, yeah, I remember you. You look exactly the same as you did when we filmed that other movie earlier this year. (laughs) Although when he turned around and shot those guys, at first I was confused. And then when the table flipped over and you saw that the the guy sitting had the pistol, it reminded me of Han Solo and Greedo. I was like, okay, he was justified in killing those guys. How he knew they had a gun, I have no idea. That's why I I think he might have heard them cock the gun 
over the sound yeah. of like the guy rhythmically stabbing the table. And again, all they had to do was put in the sound of the gun being cocked and we would have known exactly why he reacted the way he did. I mean, it's almost like sometimes they want you to think he's supernatural. Like you see that in a lot of these, uh, you know, these types of Westerns where like a guy is so good, like uh, in the Magnificent Seven, I think it was where the, uh, I forget is the character um, or the actor beats uh, the gunfighter with a knife because he's just so fast and like they have a duel and the guy with the knife kills the guy with the gun. Right, right. You know, it's, they make them seem like they're supernatural, like, you know, similar to what we were talking about with the Shaw Brothers film early, uh, earlier, um, like they're superheroes. Yeah, exactly. Did you notice that everyone in this movie's got a drinking problem? And by that, I mean, that every time they take a drink, it dribbles down their chin. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I did, you know, you just brought something up that uh, I kind of noticed and, and was like, huh, well, I guess it was a different time back then. But, uh, you know, like, oh, you know, giving the little girl the, the, the gun. It's like, here, play with this. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like, is it loaded? Is it <laughs> what's going on with that? Why do you? That that just made me think of, um, oh, I can't think of the name of the movie now. There was some, oh, it might have been, it might have been um, Tarantino's uh, Grindhouse film there. Um, uh, not 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 the one with Kurt Russell, but the um, the Robert Rodriguez one, the Planet of the Dead, where the lady leaves the kid with the gun. Oh, uh, Planet Terror. Planet Terror. Planet Terror, yeah. And she leaves the kid with the gun in the car, and the kid ends up shooting himself in the head. Yeah, shoots himself right in the face because he's an idiot. That's all I could think of. And she's like, oh my god, I can't believe that happened. It's like, what did you expect? Yeah. Your kid's a freaking weirdo <laughs> to begin with. I know. Like, the first time you see him, he's like, gonna eat your brains and gain your knowledge. Right. <laughs> like, what? And that, more than anything else, contributed to my drinking problem. Right, right. But that, that's the scene that made me think of that. But I just thought it was funny. Like, every time someone goes to take a drink, it just starts dribbling down their face. I'm like, oh, he's got a drinking problem. <laughs> you know what? One other thing I noticed, too, about Ringo. Did you notice his facial tick, which I don't think he had in the first movie? I don't recall. I would have to rewatch it. But uh, I think you're right. Yeah. I didn't notice the first time I watched it. I didn't notice it till about halfway through when somebody said something, and all of a sudden his like his left eye blinks and his left cheek goes up. And then when rewatching it, he does it quite a few times throughout the movie. And I I gotta assume that that was just sort of he brought that to the table as a a new character affectation that they didn't have in the first one, where he just has this tick, and every time something happens that irritates him he he does that which again that sort of led me to believe that he was suffering from some kind of trauma yeah that seems uh that seems fairly accurate and uh you know seems to make a lot of sense because you know that's definitely or you know maybe some kind of nerve damage you know i did like the fact that they stayed consistent and kept his face scar there because i don't know if that's a a real scar that he has or if that's just you know yeah, I wondered the same thing. I don't think it was real. I think it was for the movie. So I've seen pictures of him in other movies. And I don't think he has it in real life. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not entirely sure. But that part you mentioned when he goes, you know, he goes, comes to town and he's he's looking for a job. But basically, it's really all a pretense. He's trying to infiltrate the Fuentes gang there, and they make him eat the piece of meat off the ground. I was like, dude, wipe it off first if you're gonna actually eat it. <laughs> it's so gross. Yeah, and it's raw. Yeah. 
That didn't bother me as much as the fact that it was in the dirt. Yeah, that was kind of weird. He sees Hallie for the first time, which I thought was cool, because, again, like you said, it was like, wait a minute, did he marry Ruby? Oh, no. Yeah, like, it. yeah, that's what, uh, that's what really threw me. Yeah. But then he goes, he goes to, um, he ends up going to Morning Glory, the local florist slash uh, undertaker, and Morning Glory kind of almost recognizes him, and in hindsight, I'm thinking that he did recognize him, but he kind of figured, well, if he's in disguise and he knows what's going on, you know, Morning Glory knows what's going on with the, the Fuentes people, that he's not going to say anything, because then he goes, oh, you look just like my uncle, so we must be related. And mm. that leads to later on in the film where, uh, what's her name, Hallie goes up to him and says, is he in the house, inside? And he goes, yeah, he is. So he knew all along that it was Ringo, and maybe they had a conversation off camera when behind closed doors that they didn't show us. Yeah. You see, there's so much of this plot and so many of the character interactions that you don't get to see. There's so much that you remains a mystery. Like, how does everybody know him? Like, is this the same town from the first one? What town is it? Where does he live? Like, what what is going on? Why did he go off to war? Like, there's so much that you don't get to see and you don't find out about. Right. And you just kind of have to yeah. guess. Yeah, you have to infer it. Just, I think the same way the, the bartender from the beginning, because he ends up coming back to help him out too. Not not only did he help him with his disguise, but then he comes back and is part of, you know, Team Ringo at, at, in the end fight. Yeah, it's... It's almost like the, the, the Scooby-Doo thing where it's like, oh, uh, <clears throat> the innocuous secondary character who is introduced at the beginning and then forgotten right. only to show up at the end and be like the main bad guy. Yeah, yeah. You know, and that's just so funny. But th- then you've got uh, Esteban, who is, uh, uh, you know, played Sancho in the last movie. The character's called Esteban here. And he's just like Sancho. Like, he's literally riding down the street on his horse and knocks a guy down for no reason. <laughs> It's like okay, there was there was no call for that. They like they were really bad, like disgusting, or dastardly bad guys. I should say. Yeah, yeah. It very frustrating sometimes, but uh, I don't know. I I, I kind of uh, I kind of dug the movie for certain. You know, at certain points, like there, there was obviously a lot of stuff that like really drove me nuts. You know, and I, I, I've, I've explained that uh, several times, but there were some good scenes. Like I liked, you know, his comeback after getting his hand all jacked up, you know, his gun hand. Yeah. He's practicing with his left hand. uh, Yeah. Like Rosita comes in and like kind of saves him, you know, from getting killed. Cause it's like, okay, maybe she does have a little bit of feelings for him, but like she was kind of watching with that creepy smirk as, like, they kick the hell out of him. I just... Right, right. Again, how do you become, like, that much of a... uh, that good of a fighter after getting your hand busted up and, like, being beaten and tortured? Like, you couldn't beat them when you were fully healthy, albeit drunk, but, you know, afterwards, like, oh, I've suffered some immense damage. Right. (laughs) Time to kick some ass. I mean, that's a typical (laughs) hero trope in any action film, though. Yeah. And it's not quite as bad as, you know, what we were talking about with the Shaw Brothers films, where it's like, oh, I've been stabbed 40 times, but I can still run 15 miles to go tell all my friends about it. And now I'm dead. Yeah. 
<laughs> I know. Yeah, he. I I almost think too that it was it was um, when he first comes to town and realizes that these guys have taken over pretty much, and everybody is just is just beaten down, you know, emotionally and mentally. And I I think he he was also kind of despondent at first. He finds out you know she's going to marry Paco Hallie, and. It is really isn't until he finally starts to turn things around that he, he sort of gets his mojo back. And, you know, again, you know, maybe on a, a little superhuman level or a little bit more than human. But I, I think that that's how it went was that he not only was he suffering from trauma, but then he was beat down by the fact that he went home and everything had gone to shit. Yeah. And I did, I, I will say, I. I I begrudgingly did enjoy the, uh, you know, again, it's a, it's a common trope in all these movies. You know, if anyone has cause to, uh, you know, interrupt this union, I was like, do you? Yes. You know, I do. Do you? Well, uh, and then he's just like bursting. like, no, she doesn't. Like, <laughs> you can't marry her. That's my wife. <laughs> and I was hoping for that though. And I was glad that they, that they did that. Cause and that whole scene was awesome where he's like, I have returned. And he's backing away into the dust storm. And you can't really see. Like, Paco doesn't know what Ringo looks like. He assumes Ringo's dead and buried. And he's just backing away going, I have returned. I have returned. <laughs> I loved that scene. I thought that was amazing. It was. It was a really good scene. Like, And then, you know, the, the, the final confrontation was just fantastic. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And before we get into that, what... Why was Morning Glory, or why did he have this contraption where he would put his feet, his his lower legs, through these holes in the wall and water his feet over the plants? I... <laughs> and you can't say it's an Italian cultural thing because it's supposed to take place in America. <laughs> it's one of those, just because you can doesn't mean you should. <laughs> I mean, they had to go to all the trouble to build that on the set for him to do that with his pants rolled up. I... I was just like, what is, is he, is he multitasking? He's washing his feet and watering the plants at the same time. I mean, you know, nothing wrong with that. You know, it's like, oh, this is working out really well. <laughs> yeah. That, I just thought that was bizarre. Um, but yeah, all the, you know, all the whimsy from the first film was all but gone in this one. But he does, he does have his, eventually has his, uh, Ringo, I should say, does have his recurring line where he says, I'll explain later, which I thought that was cool. Yeah. Like every every time he does something they go, "Well, why are you doing that? I'll explain later." <laughs> yeah, it's 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 like he has the plan, you know, but they don't want to ruin the uh the surprise, you know, by like what they're going to do. And like I I get it. Like because a lot of westerns tend to involve um these crazy like, "Oh, we're going to dig these trenches and, you know, they're going to see the trenches, but when they run to the side, like a tree is going to fall on them." And then when the tree falls, it's almost like a you know, a, a convoluted, violent Rube Goldberg device. Yeah. Like, how they end. I mean, like, what was what was the name of the first one we saw? Um, Pistol. F- oh, um, Van Cleef there. Day of, um, Death, uh, Death Rides, Rides a Horse. Horse. Yeah, like what they were doing with that. Like, all right, stack all the wooden furniture over there. You spin around three times, and like, yeah. <laughs> you know, they they were like setting all these fires and like you know trying to corral people into a specific. Uh, you know, you know, they would use like the box canyons and stuff. It's like, okay, uh, 
they'll they'll have to follow us this way and like we'll set up dynamite here and we'll have a sniper six miles away and you only get one shot yeah you i don't know for for me that the whole thing turned around when ringo asks um the sheriff who's completely useless up to a certain point um he says you know we need dynamite where's the dynamite and and then they they hide the dynamite in the potted plants i thought that was brilliant Mm, yeah like that's smart like that's um because no one's gonna look there but it seems like you know that's definitely a a western trope of you know let's put dynamite somewhere that they don't expect dynamite to be and then set it off in a very unconventional way right and they they did it in such a way that i didn't even notice maybe you did but i didn't notice that they were planting quote-unquote planting the dynamite in the house because uh morning glory comes up to paco after ringo gets convinces the sheriff to arrest esteban and he and then he kills Esteban's guys in the street. So they take the guys, and of course they hide them in the coffins that we find out later. And he tells Paco, "Oh, um, McGee, um, McGee, Morning Glory tells Paco, oh yeah, so uh, Esteban's out carousing with his buddies, and he's not going to be able to attend tonight. But at the same time, he was delivering those potted plants. So I kind of totally missed that whole element of things until they shot one in the end fight, and it exploded. Yeah, it's um." I don't know. I, I, I just, there were, there were, I definitely thought that this movie at the end redeemed a lot of the stuff. You know, once you get over the in, initial shock of, of, of everything, you get to find out that, you know, there, there's a solid plot, you know, again, if it just hadn't been called a sequel, um, I think I would have enjoyed it so much more because like you're saying, like, you know, the, the ending where they're hiding dynamite everywhere and like they have these, huge explosive set pieces and you know, right. quite literally it's at certain points um you know the way they get all the bad guys and like the the scene in the church at the uh during the wedding you know when the guy's like maybe you should postpone the wedding i never postpone anything Arr. yeah yeah <laughs> um you know the way everything came together and you know was wrapped up nicely i liked it uh i liked the ending i liked the uh the final third or so of the film yeah but it just it bothered me that uh that they did what they did and how they did it to uh you know make this a sequel and i yeah it took away from my enjoyment of the film overall because it was you know i know i've been fairly critical of it but it was well made it was well done uh well acted i mean visually it was Visually, it was awesome with the with the windstorms all the time and the the hay blowing around, sort of like you would a snowstorm. You know, it just added this awesome imagery to it. Yeah, I thought that was a, a nice touch. It's like, oh, all this hay is blowing around. Like that's kind of weird because I'm not used to seeing that. But it's you know no different from like, you know, walking down an alley and seeing leaves blowing around. You know. Now there's a, a another scene that I thought. It, it just seemed like it was another one that was left up to op- open to interpretation, I should say. When uh, Paco pulls up in his coach and then uh, Ringo sees Hallie getting out and he pulls out his pistol and he he ultimately doesn't shoot anybody because he sees the little girl and somehow figures out it's his daughter. Maybe he did the math in his head. But uh, was he going to shoot Paco or was he going to mercy kill the wife? See, that I don't know. Like, I think he would have, you know tried to do his best you know maybe they would have pulled a jeff daniels in speed and shoot the hostage right but, uh, <laughs> yeah i don't know like that's 
and again, you know, it, because of how different his character is, like in the first one, it was like, oh, yeah, he's just going to shoot him right in the face. Like, that's it. Like, no problem. Yeah. But in the in this one, like, it could go either way. It's like, well, I can't live without you. And he kills her and then himself. Like, and then the little girl picks up the gun and swears revenge. And yeah. like, 10 years later, <laughs> but like, she comes back and she's played by uh, Lorella DeLuca. And everybody else is exactly the same. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, I did think that at the end of the movie, after they introduced her, and, and I thought she was she was kind of a lot like Ringo, and I would have loved to have seen another sequel where she's grown up and has to fight side by side with him. That would have been cool. Yeah, and they would have both looked exactly the same. Like, it would have been filmed, it would have come out in 1966. Yeah. And yeah. <laughs> she would have been played by Lorella DeLuca, and they were like, oh, if only your mother was here. And then they'd look at pictures, and it would still be Lorella DeLuca. Yeah. Like, I remember her, you know, oh, and this is the lady that I, that I helped back in this other movie. And then, like, there's a picture of, you know, Lorella DeLuca as Ruby. Like, just she just wears, like, different hats each time or something. <laughs> Now, there was a couple more things I just wanted to ask you about on your opinion. There was the scene where he goes into the girl's room, Ringo, and, you know, he's kind of happy that he sees the daughter and whatever. And then uh, Hallie comes in, and he steps out of the shadow, and she sees him. Like, they're face-to-face for the first time now. We've been kind of waiting for this in the movie. And the music is just so overwhelming, but I thought it, it worked. I thought... There's another scene that was similar to this. Actually, it was the scene where he sees the daughter, too, is the music is, in any other situation, would have been out of place. But, like, in that scene, I felt like it was it was illustrating all of the emotion that was going on in Ringo's head. And then in, when they meet in the bedroom, it was illustrating everything that was going on in her in her head. Like, you could see on her face. You could read that she was happy, and then she was scared, and then she was hopeful. You know, like when, when he slips out and Paco comes in, she doesn't turn around and look at him, and she's still processing what she just saw. And there was like, I thought it was good acting on her part. There was just like a glimmer of hope in her eyes that maybe she doesn't have to marry Paco. But but I thought the music in those two scenes, the crescendos, even though if you were to just listen to that piece of music, it would almost sound obnoxious. I thought they worked in both scenes. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that I'm a big fan of not being, you know, uh, not having exposition vomited on me. And that scene, you know, where she's just going through the gamut of different facial expressions and she's, you know, basically what she's saying is, oh my God, I can't believe you're alive. Oh no, what must you think of me? Wait, it's not my fault. (laughs) I didn't have a choice. I'm doing it to protect our daughter. And then you're back, which means you're not dead. You can help me because I don't want to marry this guy. I still love you. I still want to be with you. And now that you're back, we can be a family again. And she does all that without saying a word, just her facial expressions and and the music. Again, the genius of Ennio Morricone, like right. just putting that right. all together. Um, it's so well done. Yeah. Oh yeah. That was, that was, I was just so pleasantly surprised. And even like they said, like I said, the scene, the scene where he's, was about to shoot and he sees the daughter, it does the same thing. You can totally see him processing on his face, you know, almost, like I said, doing the math in his head and going, oh, shit, that's my daughter. Oh, well, this changes everything now, you know? Yeah, yeah, it's it's a huge, 
huge uh, revelatory moment, and I really liked it. Yeah, well acted, I thought. Um, and, then, you know, we get to the final fight where he's, you know, now Ringo's kind of got his step back in, uh, or he's, he's back in step, he's ready to go, he's got his plan going. The sheriff, finally back in top form, and then he gets gunned down. <laughs> it's like, no, but he, he manages to get up and kill three more guys before he dies. Yeah, which I wasn't overly uh, overly shocked by. Right. Like, oh, no, he's right. dead. Oh, but he's still killing guys. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and then I don't know. I just, I just thought the whole like end of the movie really, like you, I think you even said this earlier, it just sort of made up for the slow pace and the, and the, you know, the confusion of the storyline at the beginning. Um, cause if you notice in the end fight, he's not tan anymore. Ringo, he's, uh, he's back to his regular complexion. Yeah. He took his uh, weekly shower. Yeah. <laughs> he went, he went, he goes back to the bar and gets his uniform, which was cool. And gets his little team together, which again, like with the Indian character, he they kept showing him with the bow ready to go. And I'm like, would you f- do something? Would you kill somebody? And then finally he shoots a guy in the tree and we get this cool shot where the camera's looking down at this water. And you see in the reflection of the water, the bad guy with the arrow in him falling out of the tree and splashing, you know, to his death. I, I liked that scene, but I just wished with these ancillary characters, they had done more. It would have been nice to see him more, but I think there was just such a glut of, of um, secondary characters at that point to begin with. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm kind of okay with that. Yeah. <laughs> there was one cool, there were actually there were two really cool shots. One was, um, if we backtrack just a little bit where uh, Ringo, after getting beat up in the bar and putting the flower in Esteban's gun, he wakes up in Rosita's room and the camera's panning across the wall, and you see a painting of like a semi-naked lady, and then it's moving, and then you see what for a split second you think is a painting of Ringo, but it's a mirror above him, and he's laying down in the bed. And I thought that was a nice little, you know, shot there. Yeah, that was a, a good, uh, good juxtaposition, good, um, good camera work. Yeah, they did a lot of cool stuff like that. And and then one scene that really sort of made me really like Morning Glory was when he comes out, like they're putting the plan into motion. The the wedding is going on and he sees the sheriff across the way. Sheriff's back, ready to go. And Morning Glory just walks to like walks to him. So they're sort of heading in the same direction, getting closer to each other. And he tosses the shotgun to the sheriff and in just such a casual manner. Like they had done it a thousand times, and that—that's when I was like, "Okay, Morning Glory's cool." <laughs> yeah, like he definitely—he um, <clears throat> proved—he proved himself. I think proved his worth on that. Oh, absolutely. You know, and you had a lot of guys getting shot and falling off the rooftops in the end fight, which was great. Got got to love that. Oh yeah, yeah the the classic uh, the classics. You know, f- you know, playing all the hits. So to speak. yeah, exactly. Well, then Ringo faces off with Paco, who whips the knife at him, and he catches it in the butt of the shotgun. That was really cool. That was definitely a uh, uh, a move that was paid homage to in uh, Kill Bill uh, Volume 2, when they send the assassin after uh, Uma Thurman, and Uma Thurman throws the knife through the hole in the door that the woman just blasted with the shotgun. Oh, yeah. And she caught it with the butt of the the shotgun. Right. 
That's right. I forgot about that. Well, also when he cocks the gun, the the um the shotgun with his left hand only, it made me think of uh, Arnold in T two. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that cool little flip thing. Yeah. So you get this amazing fight. I think was it Esteban? I think got blown up by one of the uh, the potted plants. They they blew that up near him. He didn't die quite as. Uh, it was more of of uh, Paco going down because the two of them Ringo and Paco fighting for like five minutes punching the hell out of each other and they were just exhausted <laughs> but but um in you know in the first one Sancho kind of went to, was the one to go down with the uh, the ricocheted bullet but in this one I I can vaguely remember his death I, like I said I didn't he get blown up I think so like I'm trying to remember like that whole ending was a whirlwind of you know Guys getting shot, secondary characters, you know, red shirts getting killed, um, you know, folks blowing up, things happening. Like, there was a lot of action to keep track of. And not only that, they bring out the uh, this flat-looking Gatling gun. <laughs> yeah, like, that was nuts. And um, But, yeah, so it was ultimately was Paco, which was cool because I liked the fact that, you know, um, what's his name? George Martin, who played him in the, played the sheriff in the first one, had a much meatier role in this one. And I, I guess he's kind of actually more known for playing sort of these uh, CD villains. Yeah, he was definitely a creepy weirdo. Um, but he looked, uh, in the in the synopsis that I, I found, uh, they referred to him as a plastic-haired villain. And it's like, yeah, he definitely looks like, <laughs> you know, he was, he came out of a mold. Right, with the Lego hair. Yeah. <laughs> So then ultimately, I thought the fight was still going to go on, but it ended and uh, Ringo, oh, no, I'm sorry, uh, Paco steps out of the house and it, I think he he had taken already two or three bullets in the shoulder from Ringo and then comes out and he's gunned down and he's dead. And I liked that shot where Hallie is going, she's looking and she's running towards the building. She's thinking the worst. I mean, you could just, again, see it on her face that she's thinking Ringo's dead too. And then he comes out with Elizabeth and uh, I have to say, I know you didn't really care for this movie. I clapped at that scene out loud. And, and one of the reviews I read, they said that when that scene happened, when they, they showed it recently in a theater and people got up and cheered. <laughs> oh, it's a great it's a great scene. It's uh, definitely a, a powerful scene emotionally. Um, yeah, it was. Yeah, it was good. Like, you know, like I said, the last third of this film definitely made up for it. Uh, all the rest of it. And I agree with your assessment, sort of like the, the Kurt Russell remake of the Poseidon Adventure. If they had just called it something different, it would have been an entertaining movie. You know, if they had just called this the, the return of Steve, it, it, you wouldn't have had any expectations walking in and you wouldn't have cared if the actors played different characters or not. I agree. Yeah, it's 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 unfortunate when you have to... I mean, I get capitalizing on a popular film, but I don't think this is the way to do it. Yeah. <laughs> the director was probably like, hey... What are you guys doing? We just finished that last movie. You want to make another one? Yeah, sure. All right. Like there are sequels to films, uh, and it's funny because it's an Italian film. There's a uh, there's a film series called Patrick about a guy who's in a coma and he uses his psychic powers to kill people from it being in a coma. And uh, it was an Australian film, and then an Italian director made a sequel for it, but like didn't have the rights to it and like made a sequel, but like it wasn't a sequel like it had a lot of the same stuff from the original in it and it's so it's like an unofficial sequel but it's like we're capitalizing on the popularity you know like movies have done that we're like we're gonna put your movie title as our movie title because people are aware of your movie title and like we're gonna call it you know part two or part three and it has 
nothing to do. It's like, right. like oh, you know, like if Rambo 2 took place in space and was about, you know, <laughs> uh, you know, mining for helium three on the far side of the moon. Yeah. And like they just happen to have a like Rambo is like a, uh, you know, a, an, an acronym for like a robot. It's like <laughs> remote automated machine, you know, blasting blast off. Yeah. I don't know. Like, yeah, it was, it was the name of the rocket. <laughs> right. So I liked how um, I liked how this movie sort of was um, it, it ran the pattern of the Odyssey. With Odysseus, uh, you know, disguising himself as a peasant and do battle with the wife suitors. I thought that was kind of a cool touch. That may have been the template, too, where they said, well, how can we form, you know, plot out this story? Well, let's, you know, make it like the Odyssey and take all the key moments out of that. So then Rosita must have been like a siren. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. And, you know, just to to wrap this up here, I think um, I think Duccio Tassari did a great job here. I thought, I think he's a solid director. I mean, this movie was a hit as well as the first one, a pistol for Ringo. And I think when, as we compare uh, and contrast the, um, Shaw Brothers films and the spaghetti Westerns, I think, well, well, Tassari is not as prolific as Chang Che, who's made hundreds of films. I think they both have a lot in common in terms of being very stylistic with their directing, but also being able to make movies with completely different tones and still make them be, uh, for the most part, amazing and and in some cases, you know, hits. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely a formula that works with uh, these types of films. Although I will say the um, the big difference that I've seen between um, between the uh, the Shaw brothers and you know the the westerns is the westerns tend to have happier endings. Like you don't, right? You know, Shaw brothers, everybody could be dead at the end. Like you don't. That's know. true. <laughs> you know, and the and the, even this one though, it just kind of ended. There was no denouement either. Yeah, yeah, that you know, we talked about that. That happens quite a bit. Yeah, although I like the the final line of Elizabeth, where the mother says, "You know, where'd you get that dress?" And she goes, "I'll explain later." <laughs> that I thought that was a nice touch. Yeah, I I thought that was pretty funny. <laughs> so, Pat. uh Give us your, you know, you have throughout the film, but just one last time, give us your final thoughts on uh, the return of Ringo. Um, I definitely, I, I think it's a, a good watch. I definitely recommend it. Um, you know, if if you haven't seen it and you're thinking about watching it and you've listened to the show last week and, and this week, you know, and you're like, okay, well, if I go into it thinking that, you know, knowing that it's a sequel, but it's like a non-sequel, you know, kind of like how Halloween 3 season of The Witch was a non-sequel to Halloween 1 and 2. Go into it like that, I think you'll enjoy it more. I right. I like going into these movies blind, like I like to know the title and that's it and then, you know, see what I can find out because, you know, in 1965 there was no IMDb and it's like, "Hey, the sequel came out to this movie you like. Oh, I'm going to watch it." Wow, that's so weird and confusing. Like I want to go into it with the exact same a viewpoint that somebody would go into it watching it when it first came out. So I want to know as little about it as possible. Uh, so I can, I can form an honest opinion. Yeah. And um, I was able to do that. I, I again, I liked it. Uh, the last third of the film was very, very good. Um, starting with, you know, him getting the, the, the pudding beat out of him at the bar. 
uh, from then on, it's it's very very good, and uh, you know, it lives up more to his character, I think, uh, from the first film than anything that occurred previously. I agree. I agree. I think you definitely have to walk into this with um, knowing that it's a completely different film, basically, than the first one. Um, I think I liked it a little bit more than you did. And um, I also like to walk into these films not really knowing much. Like I said, I, the only thing I knew is that this movie was going to be darker in tone. But yeah, it's definitely, as a standalone film, it's it's very enjoyable. And just try not to walk in with too many expectations. I think you'll be pleasantly surprised. So, well, um, Pat, thank you for joining us uh, once again as my co-host here on the um, The East Meets the West. And I'd like to also thank the audience for joining us on this odyssey, if you will, this journey into Shaw Brothers movies and Spaghetti Westerns. And folks, don't forget to go wherever you download your podcasts and leave us a great review so that more people can find the show. If you want to send us your thoughts on today's episodes, please send them to theeastmeetsthewest42 at gmail.com. And check out our website at havenpodcast.com where you can find our sister show, Then Is Now, where we discuss all the cool stuff that you may have missed out on and stuff that you probably should know. So join us again on our next episode of The East Meets the West. Pat, take care. You too. I kiss at last the beloved crown of my land. The East Meets the West is intended for educational and entertainment purposes only. All clips played on the show are property of their copyright holders. All other material is copyright Jupiter Media. And now what happens, you must, you must tell me. You must remember. Oh, so saw me as a wrong time.